There. Now can you hear me? I apologize that you did not hear me a moment ago and the delicious first five words that came out of my face. <sighs> every time uh, every time there's an update for a Streamlabs OBS, it unsyncs my microphone and I have to go in and do it on every one of the different scenes I have for the different videos from Minecraft and the raft and all that stuff. And I always miss one. <clears throat> this week it was Merch World, so... Either way, thank you all so much for coming by yet another of my Dungeons & Dragons Merge Worlds Story Podcast. So, I appreciate you all coming by and listening to me spout this stuff off every other Sunday. It is my favorite thing that I get to do. And uh, it is awesome how much everybody is uh, reacting well to it. Nice shirt, yes, at the very bottom. It actually says, what would Keanu do? It's him holding a dog. Yeah, I love this. Got on Amazon, 20 bucks, good deal. I normally try to wear one of my shirts on the streams to advertise my stuff, but this one makes it in pretty often, so. <clears throat> Alright. <clears throat> Introduction. So, hello everybody. I see uh, Beast is here. Jim and Ashley are here. Brandon. Good day, Brandon. Uh, the Beast. Ah, uh, the Savage Beast. Always here. Happy to have you all. So, <clears throat> big things are afoot in the world of Merge Worlds, I would say. We are getting to some serious stuff be a way to say that. Now, um, I will throw out a disclaimer at the beginning of the stream today. Many of you may know this, some of you may not. I am currently in the middle of kidney stones, so if you see me wincing or acting a little offhand, it's just because I'm in pain. Uh, so, it's nothing horrible, it's something I'll see the doctor tomorrow morning, hopefully going to get some stuff resolved, but uh, I may stop every so often and look like I'm taking a breath, it's because I need to take a breath. Uh, <clears throat> also, I worked a bit on the camera today, trying to fix the lighting and uh, clarity of my camera. Um, we chatted about it a bit this morning on the morning stream, and uh, the glare off my big fat white face was getting to some people. So I think I've done, I still need to tweak it some more, but I think this looks better. Uh, so if you're at the morning stream, I'd be interested to know if you can see a difference. Um, <clears throat> Scoozy. Uh, so, excellent. Hey, the MT is here. Good stuff. <laughs> Even with kidney stones. Oh, man. The world would have to die before I'm here for Merge Worlds. And hello, Jeff, as well. All right. So, um, we'll do a real quick brief uh, look back at what we ended up last time. Because uh, some big things happened during the last episode. Kind of left on a big moment. So, we're going to talk about that. Um, and where we're going moving forward. Um the storyline that we're starting now, I mean, it's all the same, it's all part of the big thing, but this section is really going to move us into some events that are going to dictate the rest of these characters' lives more than anything else they've done. Um, so I'm excited to get on that path. Uh, I think many of you will see what's going on as we get there, hopefully. Uh, I'd be interested to hear feedback if you, uh, with your ideas of what you think is going to happen. Um, so... Let's talk. So, when we ended last time, Darsh and uh, the companions and all their people on the boat went to Kronayar, where um, he was offered by the Emperor a status of noble. Uh, hey, Zach! Hello! Uh, he was offered a rank of nobility, A, because he just freaking deserved it. That was the most important thing. Um, but secondly, because he, since he's so well allied with uh, Paxawal and the human races, and he's a, considered normal, uh, a noble in Thorman, he's considered a personal friend of the King of Arduel, um, and he gets along well with Firemoon. So um, that 
puts him in a really interesting spot that the uh, Kroniar Minotaurs can use him as someone who can speak on their behalf positively with these other nations where he's considered a friend. Uh, Darsh accepted that. There was a challenge uh, by some shady Minotaurs. Um, they, he agreed to uh, basically tr uh, trial by, uh, by battle, and him and several of the companions entered into an arena where, of course, they beat the bad things, and then there was some uh, conspiracy, and big monsters showed up, and he had to beat them up too, uh, but was successful. You may also hear a jingle ball in the background. Uh, my mother-in-law got our cats a big bag of new kitty tree uh, play toys, and they have been having a blast with these things all day. So I apologize for the jingles. Um, at that point, they returned to Paxiwal, uh, still on their quest to find the source, which is the where they're supposed to be taking all these magical artifacts in their chest of holding to potentially save the world or unlock it so that people can go home if they want to or fix things back the way they were. There has been no word from any of them to any of them from Zoltan. Uh, the demigod who set them on this quest has been mysteriously gone for a while now. Uh, so they don't really have any guidance on what to do next. Hello, uh, Ethan de Opibos. Welcome, sir. Welcome, welcome. So, without any specific, here's what you need to do next. They're continuing their research, trying to find the source, and just kind of going about their lives. Darsh is looking at ships, thinking about buying a larger one. Uh, he has, he now basically owns the four islands where they fought the pirate lich, uh, which are a good distance away, and a place that Darsh is considering if things, you know, one way or another, could become his, his final home. Uh, which is, again, the first time any of them have ever really talked about not going back home, if given the opportunity to back to their original worlds. So um, it's discussed, but never openly, are you staying, are you not? You know, it's one of those things that the allies talk around without directly going into. Um, but it definitely added a uh, essence of permanence to at least Darsh's part of the storyline. Um, and so they got back to Paxiwal. Everybody's looking around, hanging out, doing their own thing. Uh, Artemis has been uh, hanging out at the temple, teaching classes, speaking to... So being a, an inspiration to the youths of Paxiwal. Um, and she was resting there one evening, because it was late. She didn't feel like going all the way back to their house. Where she was visited in her dreams by the god Tavian. The god of healing, who um, is her patron. Who she prays to, who provides her power. Um, <clears throat> in case I've never mentioned it, I think that I... I don't know if I've ever mentioned this or not, but I should have. I think I mentioned it way back in the beginning. We talked about gods. But Tavian is one of the only gods that I actually have a visual representation of. Uh, because this is the first time they got to meet a god, really. You know? Um, and just because I'm <clears throat> cheesy as hell, um, the role of Tavian, the god of healing, is played by Hugh Laurie. Because uh, I just think that's awesome of an idea. And sure enough, he walks with a cane and everything, just like the character of House. Um, or staff in his situation, as, he's, as he would walk around if he was to project. Because the concept is that because of Tavian's great love of others, he gives healing, but he's giving a piece of himself away to do that healing. So he is basically taking onto himself the pains, the sicknesses, and the illness 
of everyone who is healed through his magic. He's trading a part of his health for that. Uh, so he's never truly healed, never truly at his full power uh, because he's a giver. Um, and that's that's kind of the lore behind Tavian, which, again, um, the other three people here, um, Darsh, Dandy, and Mercy, they all have gods that they worship as well. Let me grab my god book. We, I don't think I've ever really talked about this, but now that gods are popping into their lives, it might be important to know some of this stuff. So we're going to talk about just a couple of real quick things before we get into the story. So again, Tavian, the god of life, god of healing, um, the goddess of light is Manara. She's the head god of good. Tavian's basically the spouse. Um, so that's who Artemis prays to. Um, and then Malachi is, or pronounced Malika. I said Malachi. Some people think it's Malika. Depends on your race. Um, is the goddess of the feast and harvest. Um, that is one of the more common kender gods uh, because it's about new beginnings uh, and, and feasting and, and nature and all that kind of stuff. Not druid-wise. There's a god of nature. <clears throat> but the feast and harvest comes with the innocence of, of celebration of life in general. Uh, so while a kender can be, any race can be a follower of any god, that's the more common kender god. Uh, yes, Ethan, I remember you from yesterday's stream. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then we have uh, Darsh and Mercy. And Darsh and Mercy both kind of fall under the same one. Uh, and that is going to be Coram, the, uh, the, the god of war, who's actually a neutral god, because war has no good or evil. War is its own thing. Um, they both worship Coram, uh, which is common for the Minotaurs especially, and very often by... Uh, knights and such. Uh, Mercy also, of course, uh, Manara, goddess of light, is her kind of second list. Those are the two that she would follow more than anything else. Darsh, mostly Coram, but Darsh not a highly religious person. Uh, his only real religious experiences have been with Zoltan, and frankly, he's not that impressed. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but those would be the gods that if they had to pray in a moment of prayer, that's who they're praying out to. Uh, is that important? <laughs> Maybe. We'll have to see. So, Artemis has this vision. Tavian comes to her in a dream and says, something horrible is happening to the north. You must go north. You must... I've chosen you to be the emissary of my word. Get up there and take care of what's going on. Very vague stuff. But, you know, you're a cleric. Your god shows up and says, hey, go rake the leaves. You're going to do it. And I say no to the gods. I mean, that's the... That's serious stuff. So, um, she awakens. She tells the other clerics about it. The other clerics can totally see, I mean, just looking at her, that she's touched by a god. I mean, always was. But, I mean, in this moment that she's had an encounter, because you, you, they are powerful clerics, they can sense that stuff. And it turns out there were two others that had a dream and were uh, contacted by Tavian, not quite on the level that she was, um, but let it known that they were to accompany her. Let's look at them again real quick. So, the first one was a young, relatively new cleric named Misha, also a cleric of the God of Healing. And the second one is Lucas. And Lucas is a, is a Templar. So he is um, basically one of the knights of the church. He, uh, he serves the gods as well. He serves on missions. They, a lot of times uh, with you know, holy wars, it happens. But primary thing is he protects the keep and the temples. If somebody was to attack it or whatever, 
he would be involved in that. And also, he would also be very commonly used as someone who would travel with clerics when they travel, especially higher-ranking ones, to provide protection. Um, the temple doesn't know a lot about his history or background, only that he basically showed up one day and um, begged that they take him in. They did, and he has been working as a Templar here in Paxwell for close to 30 years at that point. Uh, um, never seeking a higher rank, although many times those type of things offered. He's always turned them down. He just wants to serve God in that one capacity. Um, because temp Templars, while they serve the temple, uh, they can also go to a specific god. And he's also specifically under the, the, the god of healing. So, um, Tavian as well. Uh, but serves the church as a whole. And, and like you're not going to find him protecting probably evil clerics, but, you know, it's a thing. So, they had those, and Dream said, hey, you guys need to go too. Uh, they're like, hey, we had this weird dream about some elven cleric that I've seen, and we're supposed to go north, and because God told us to. And they're like, yeah, you're in the caravan. So they decided that uh, they were going to make it a small group. They're not going to openly advertise this. Since they were came to them specifically, it's felt that they uh, were going to keep it on the DL. The, these characters and our heroes are already have a multitude of groups and individuals who strongly dislike them. Uh, no sense advertising that they're going off into an area that, at this point, is considered um, unexplored. Um, they're going to be going straight north through the Valley of Sacrifice. Uh, they've never gone directly north for a long distance before, and no one really has. There's no real villages or towns between Paxiwal within range that made it worth their while to travel. Um, they did some exploration, of course, but not really finding anything. The odd house, a farm, or whatever. Um, they're like, okay, well, we're going to call our border here, set up protection, but the occasional visitor or uh, exploration may happen, but nothing major. Oh, hello, Patches. Welcome back, sweetie. Don't break my lamp. Um, so, with that being the case, uh, we're going to send a small group. Now, they did speak to the Brotherhood of Magic. That's the Mage Tower and Mage Association that hangs out in Paxable. And, yes, I see you. And their good friend, Tobias, uh, offered to go with them. Don't step on the mouse, sweet. Uh, offered to go with them. They, of course, accepted. Tobias being a, an ally and friend for a very long time. And at this point, starting to work his way up there in the uh, mage ranks as well. He's got a little juice in his magical powers. So uh, definitely nice to have a mage. Again, the reason I created <laughs> Tobias is so that the characters would have the option of a mage when needed because none of them were playing a wizard. Don't point your butt at the camera. That's not cool. This is a place of business. Let's keep this professional. Censoring kitty butts. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> all right. I love the cat. All right. So um, that's kind of where we left off. They were going to head north. And that's what they did. They, uh, they didn't bring anyone else other than our four heroes. Right? We got Darsh, Dandy, Mercy, and Artemis. Four people. We have Ulrich, who is now the henchman and or minion of uh, Mercy. Oh, yes, you can climb up on my belly. It's fine. Yes, you can. Um, so there's that. And uh, then there is Tobias, Misha, and... Lucas. So 
That's kind of the group. There's basically eight of them at this point, I believe. Nine of them. Nine of them if we count Tobias. Uh, so they are now going to be heading north to all they know, the only word they know, of a place called Moonbrook. Um, but there's nothing specifically. Unfortunately, Zach and Twill were not there, so they were not able to ask them if they've been up in that area at all. Uh, so unfortunately, there's no knowledge of exactly what they're going into. There are some maps going up a small distance, um, and they do get those from the temple. Um, and the temple does provide them with a little bit more stuff than normal. The temple actually provides them with uh, several magical potions and healing salves that are magical. Um, while they've been allies before, rarely does the temple ever give them like magical loot. Uh, but this isn't a, hey, we're on a quest looking for treasure or helping the city. This is a, God told us to do this. And the temple's like, we're going to give you everything we can to help make sure that this is successful. Because, you know, he's one, of our, he's one of our top dogs. We want to make sure his will is handled. So, yes, you can lay down. So, he, uh, they go ahead and they proceed to go north. Um, as I've mentioned before, we're going to see a lot more of me reading specific scripts uh, that I read to the characters. And you're going to get to see a bunch of that as well. Um, so, I'm going to share some of that with us. Because uh, I, I like to kind of give you guys the same experience they got when they were playing this story. As much as I can. So, um, so when I say you leave, I'm talking to the characters. This is how I read it to them. You leave Paxawal at dawn. Uh, the nine of you are supplied horses by the temple, and you point them northward. Uh, travel through this country is relatively easy. So again, right now they're traveling through Paxawal. It's very peaceful. There hasn't been any issues from the north since they took out um, their old friend Zarin's in, you know, human, in humanoids group. Um, a lot of the land that you're going now uh, has been um, developed over the past couple of years. Small towns and villages separated by prosperous farmlands and homesteads now cover the area. Roads have been repaired and maintained, and militia patrol, uh, patrol and protect regularly. You make your way through familiar, uh, the familiar landscape, stopping at favorite inns and talking with old friends. Because they've met people along the way. There's the cleric they met at the one town who kind of got them going on the whole adventure. And maybe they've stayed in an inn and made friends with a barkeep. Little things that the characters would remember, but we kind of breezed over because it wasn't, you know, story-related as, as a whole. People smile and wave as you pass, and much of the nervousness and distrust caused by the merge seems to have finally passed. People have adjusted to this new world and have gone about the business of living their new lives. Paxwall is also booming with the increase of productive farmland and trade. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, a highway has been started between Paxwall and the Kingdom Firemoon with hopes of increasing trade. That's a huge thing. That's, that's a massive, massive distance. Um, it does bypass Arduel, but it'll allow them to basically go from Paxwall straight northeast up towards the Kingdom of Firemoon. Um, see. They're, of course, not going to be on that very long because they're going straight north, uh, but they do get to see where it's already been started and, and where progress has been made. Um, so they travel for literally days and weeks, and they go through the Valley of Sacrifice. Always stop to check it out. The The gate is still there. The, the Realm Gate is what they're called, and um, if, uh, they, if they had uh, any type of uh, knew of a gate anywhere where they were going, they could use it, but since they weren't given anything like that, they're giving, they just kind of pass through it. Again, that's usually a moment to wish uh, fair tailings to their, to their friends that were lost one way or another. Um, 
They travel for a good five full weeks before they reach what would be considered the end of civilized lands. So this is where Paxwall has their furthest outposts. Um, so these people, these guards and stuff live out here for weeks, months on end and change in and out, but it's kind of what Paxwall says, this is our board. From here back is ours. Um, not that there's been any issues with anybody coming from the north, um, but still, you don't want to just not have it protected in any way. Um, let's see here. Uh, now, you know that the vast forest to your northwest is where you face Zarin. That's They can kind of see that off in the, the distance because it was the base of a mountain range, and they can see that. <clears throat> um, and you stay away from the woods, of course, because you never know if there's any still orcs and trolls living in the woods. That Paxawal's done a pretty good job of making sure that... Uh, the lands stay free of that kind of stuff, but you never know, right? Um, you're not exactly sure where you're going or how far it is, but you're not really concerned. Artemis seems to have an inner compass pulling her northward. You can only assume she's being led the right way. So, literally, you could tie her in a box, spin her up, lock her in a basement. She'll be able to tell you exactly the direction north is at any given time. Now, it's not a normal skill she has, but right now, she literally can sense a pull. And I kind of compared it to the pull that the um, pirate guys had with the, the lich. They always knew where that island was. No matter what they were, what they were doing, they knew exactly how far that way was. Artemis doesn't know how far, she just knows the direction they need to go. Um, now during this time, you get they get to really get to uh, meet their new allies and, and learn much about them. Um, Ulrich, of course, we know Ulrich, but Ulrich has easily become someone you all depend on. He's intelligent and well-trained. He's independent and actively takes part in any discussion or strategy, but always defers to any decision Mercy makes. So he'll give his point of view, he'll say what he thinks is best, and as soon as Mercy makes a decision, he does it, whether he disagreed with it or not. Um, he does not ever argue that point. He'll, he'll argue it up to the point that a decision is made. But once he says, no, this is what's being done, he's going to carry it out. Tobias settles in as if he never left. He's obviously more experienced now and speaks with confidence and knowledge. He's very light-natured, always happy to lighten the mood with a story or cantrip. He takes great delight in amazing dandy with minor illusions and tricks. Um, so he's very quickly moved up the ranks within the Brotherhood of Magic, uh, especially within his field, which is, of course, the study and creation of magical items and artifacts. That's his specialty, and he has a very strong uh, knack for that. So much so that early on he was one of the many um, apprentices um, that uh, was under Lemia, who's the head of the uh, neutral gods, uh, or sorry, neutral uh, mages. Um, at this point, he has become her right hand. He's literally ranked up to a point that uh, she uses him for a lot of stuff. So he spends a lot of time with the two of them just making magic. She's a really older lady, but mean looking, but very nice. Uh, Brandon asks, is there a map online someone has made about this? I don't know how this works. It would be cool if someone made a fan art of the map. I have a pencil drawing of the map. I just, I can't get it to show up well on the camera the way things are. I have hundreds of maps, but see, you just see a white page. And because of the way the lighting is, it's hard for me to show it. Uh, see, now you can kind of see there's, there's stuff there. I will see if I can find a way to scan this. Uh, I need to buy a scanner anyways, so I may look into a scanner within the next week and make some of this stuff available on um, my website, onlydraven.com. Um, a, a lot of the characters that I'm talking about, um, I use pictures of famous people or actors, celebrities, um, uh, athletes, 
to represent what they look like. So if you're new to this, you're new to the story, if you go to OnlyDraven.com, at the top there's a link for one that says characters. You can go and actually see the actors and actresses that I would have play this part to get a feel for who they are. Uh, so you have an idea of what they look like. Uh, I personally, I, I do that because I like, when I'm seeing someone in my head of a character, I like you to be seeing the same person. That's just kind of how I roll. Um, but yeah, I'll see if I can get some of these maps. I got so many maps. <laughs> so many maps. But I'll see if I can get, find a way. I, may, I just need to buy a scanner. I need to break down and do it. Um, uh, let's see here. Lucas is a much more serious man. Uh, stern and practical, he offers his experience when needed or asked, but defers to Artemis in all things, save her safety. He is always by her side, always watching for any threat. He is kind-hearted and after a while accepts the party as friends and fellow protectors of Artemis. Next to her, he seems to connect best with Mercy and Ulrich. Um, because again, warriors, um, the Templars are much like a knight's organization, but holy knights. Um, so it would make sense that... Oh, there we go. Thank you, Joseph, for the sub. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, both Knight uh, Mercy and Ulrich come from a knight's background. Uh, she was the daughter of a knight, raised as a knight. He was a knight who left the knighthood to come serve her. Um, so uh, it would make sense that they would kind of wish together. Um, Misha is a bit more of an enigma. She's incredibly quiet, speaking only when directly spoken to. She discusses faith and magic with Artemis, but everyone else she mostly avoids. Uh, she does stare at the sights in wonder, showing her inexperience in travel. So she's she's clearly the one that has the hardest time. She's riding the horse, but barely. Um, there's times that she's kind of slowing down the group, but they're not in a hurry, so it's not a big deal. Um, but she is by far the least experienced of anyone here. Um, let's see. Uh, Ethan asks, did you make a tutorial on the Infinity Drill? I don't believe that I have, no. I don't think I've ever had requested that one. I can look into it, though. Let me add that to my list here. Yes, I know, Patches. You're here, so I got you, babe. I'll look in to see if I can put something together for you this week. Okay? Um, 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 um. So, yeah, Misha, again, young, inexperienced. Uh, definitely defers to Artemis as a senior cleric. Um, she is aware of, of Artemis's new rank because she was promoted right before she left. She's she's pretty high up there herself. Well, mostly because, again, her, her power calls for that. She She's strong enough, and the fact that she now has, you know, God specifically t talking to her, it's the kind of person you want to promote. Um, so, they traveled five weeks to get to that section I talked about. They traveled close to another four to five weeks, continuing north after that point, into what you call the Wilds area north. Um, and, they, of course, they, they, they lose the mountains. Those have dropped off after a long time. They're in an, they're, most of the area they're in now is just uh, plains, some forested area, and very rolling hills. Um, it's weather-wise where they're at right now, I would say it is a just very early fall, end of summer, early fall. But again, you know, they could be walking 10 feet and suddenly they're in the snow. Merged Worlds is a messed up place like that. Um, but where they are right now, most of it is that type of a, a, a ge geography. Um, Let's see here. Ba, 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 ba. So I'm going to breeze over some of the couple things here. Uh, they did have one, you know, this is D&D. There had to be a fight in there somewhere. As they're making their way through the uh, through the hills, uh, <laughs> uh, you hear sounds that sound like uh, 
thunder, and even though you're looking up and you don't see anything. <laughs> and then <laughs> Ulrich starts yelling, Incoming! Move! 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 And he starts scooting everybody out of the way as a giant rock lands. And there's a great big half-hill giant, half-cyclops dude whipping rocks at them. And they had to they had to fight against him. Again, it's one of those things when you're playing D&D. &D, every so often you have to have that random encounter. Um, and in this situation, I put a cyclops. So, so I throw that there. A, 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 a small giant size cyclops, for the record. Not a regular human size cyclops. This one's throwing big boulders. So there's that. Uh, then they, of course, continue on in their traveling. So... This next part's going to seem a bit odd uh, because there was a little bit more at play when we actually were doing the role-playing. It's going to be hard for me to relive that, so uh, hopefully what I'm doing won't seem too bad. Um, but as they are traveling, continuing north, um, in the distance ahead of them, they make out a dude, a figure, I should say. I don't know if it's a dude or a woman. So it's a figure. There's a rock that stands about four or five feet tall in the middle of a kind of the, one of the, one of the hills areas, it's a very rolling hills, tied nearby to a small tree is a horse, and this dude is just hanging out, sitting on the rock, cross-legged. He's got long black hair, and he's just kind of wisping in the wind, and he's just sitting there, legs crossed, his hands on his lap, just staring. Now he is not dressed in gray. It is not Zoltan. Let me clear that up for you real quick. That's why I said long black hair, whipping, because it is. It is not Zoltan. <laughs> Although I keep being asked where he is. Maybe even I don't know. He's a god after all. The party, of course, gets cautious. Um, they could go around him, but he's the first person they've seen in, in quite a while. And as they've been traveling, occasionally they'll come across the farmstead where some family's trying to make a living and Sometimes those people are like, hey, don't come over here, pitchforks. And sometimes they may welcome in and trade or whatever. Let them use their well to get water kind of stuff. Um, tales of what's south, what's north, kind of that stuff. Um, but this is the first human, other than the Cyclops, first humanoid they've seen in several weeks at this point. So they slowly make their way up to this person. And uh, as they get close... It's already been decided, but most everybody kind of stops back a little bit. Um, and it's just Darsh, Mercy, and Ulrich, and Dandy, because you can't keep Dandy into anything new. They continue on with their horses while um, Lucas, Tobias, and the two clerics are kind of hanging back a little bit. Um, right? Lucas, Tobias? Yeah, that's right. And so they make their whip. The gentleman is just kind of sitting there staring at them. Um, he's dressed mostly in black. Uh, appears you can see the the uh, sword on his back. Um, and let's see here. Let me get the specifics here. Uh, just past him, you can see that there's a small group of trees um, and a small pond next to it. Now that you come up this hill a little bit, would be a perfect spot to make a camp. And he's just kind of sitting there between you the characters, and the camp. Um, so, of course, they come up and they're like, uh, well met, sir. We hope we're not trespassing on your lands. I mean, they don't know. It could be his lake, right? You know, They're not from around here. And they're like, uh, and he just slowly shakes his head no. 
and they take that to mean that okay it's not excellent um, and Mercy you know just striking up a conversation she goes we haven't seen a lot of folks out here the first person we've seen in a long time we're actually heading north but we're really not sure what we're heading into do you know the area at all for you from around here maybe able to give us some guidance about what we're kind of coming up to and then kind of tilts his head a little bit and is looking at her and then he looks at Ulrich and then of course he looks at Darsh because they're way they're you know short short super tall super tall I mean <laughs> and he introduces himself as Shen Quan Although he goes by Quan. That's who I'm using to represent him. So, he doesn't move, doesn't reach for weapons, but he talks very confidently, keeping his eye on them and such. But he seems to be eyeing Mercy the most. And he says that he has been watching them for quite a while now. And they're like, oh, really? How intriguing. Um, why would you be doing that? And he says, because he's also been watching the group of drow that have been following them for several weeks now. Now, at this point, they're all a little surprised. Especially Dandy. Because Dandy is like, a, hey, I didn't see anybody following me. I'm supposed to find people following me. And she has to look on her face like, I don't know if I believe you. But at the same time, she also has to look on her face of Drow. Dandy has a very strong hatred for Drow, if we all remember. And he says that they have been slowly getting closer and closer to the party, and that he has decided to make himself known at this point, because it is his belief that it will be this evening or the next that the Drow will attempt to attack them, most likely while they are camped. And they're like, uh, well, while we appreciate you giving us this news, why would we believe you in this? I mean, this is strange. Guy says you've been following him for a long time, following the drow. What are you following me for? You know, that's the kind of question you're going to ask. And there was some questioning and discussions and things that went on between Quan uh, and these folks that are there, but mostly between him and Mercy. And he basically tells a story about why he's been following him. And it comes out through questions and such, but I'm going to give you the gist of it. Quan was, is a man with no home. Um, his father died in the service of their liege lord, who also died. Um, at that point, Quan had no home, no one to be, you know... They were raised to, you know, protect that king, whatever the case was. That was that was their jobs. Their personal bodyguards. Quan was a young man, but uh, you know, not too long ago, clearly. And so his father, you know, told him as he was dying, told him to go and, and find a new lord to serve. That's what they do. Whoa! Settle down, kiddies. We just jumped on something. Stop messing with stuff. Leave my printer alone. Um, his family has always been bodyguards or um, personal protectors of that liege lord for generations. So that's kind of the life that they know. And they're like, at this point, you're not able to do that because father's dying, injured, on his deathbed, no way to heal him. 
And so they're like, you need to go out and find yourself a new Lord. And he gave him some words of wisdom that we're not going to touch on quite yet. I'm going to come back to that. Some words for how to know what you're looking for. How to, how to, he's like, how do I know a good Lord when I find him? But he proceeds to tell a story where he was a traveling, of course. He's been traveling for several years at this point, uh, seeking that place, not finding anything. You know, working jobs here and there, doing certain stuff, but never finding the, the, the leader type that his father told him to find, to find a Lord worthy of putting his family's honor, name, and reputation on the line for. And he was still traveling when the merge happened. Merge happened. Now he's in the middle of a new world. To him, didn't really matter that much. He really didn't have a home to begin with. He was an only child. His mother passed away in childbirth. Uh, it was just him and his dad. His dad raised him to be a warrior, but then father passed away in the service of the Lord, or their Lord liege, not a god. Just him flying solo. And so, I guess I can take that picture off the screen now. Um, and he'd been searching. And, you know, he was having rough times. He didn't have a lot of money, have a job, kind of living on the streets kind of thing of a situation. And uh, he had heard tell of a king. He wandered into a countryside of a king uh, that was said to be noble. Um, and, a, and a pretty good king. And he's like, oh, okay, look, go check this out. And his concept, of course, is to go into that city or that town or that kingdom and hear what the people say about him, search out the truth, find out what kind of person he is, watch, study. You, know, you just don't take that on lightly. And he'd gotten to this kingdom and he'd even gotten close enough to hear the king speak several times. And while he agreed, the king seemed like a very noble man. He just wasn't quite what he was looking for. It didn't strike... The things he said did not speak to his heart, if you will. Hopefully this isn't too boring, but it's important. <laughs> it was from one of these evenings that he was returning home, well, to the squalor. He used some of his last coins on a, on a very, very cheap inn. He's he still kind of dirty, you know, because he doesn't have a lot of money and he's trying to blend in to be able to see people and such without giving off too much stuff. So poor guy's fine. When he was set upon by a group of bullies and brigands. Now, Quan, unfortunately, was in a position where he was either going to have to be robbed and take a beating, or he was probably going to have to defeat the five or six of them, which he had complete faith that he could do. A, they just assumed he was some poor beggar and had no idea what his skills is, and Quan's got some skills. I'll throw that at you. and was about to, unfortunately, unleash that fury on them, when suddenly, the altercation was interrupted by uh, what he at first thought was a young couple. A young woman and her blonde-haired friend came into the alley and uh, basically broke up the fight. And before he had a chance to say much at all, They'd basically whooped all five of those guys while he was just standing there. Quan Thankful really didn't need their help, but was kind of confused why these people would step in and do that type of thing. And They introduced themselves, and when he asked their names, Ulrich said, my name is Ulrich, 
and Mercy introduced herself as Mercy Hareton. And that caught his attention. Very much so. But he didn't know what it meant. So he thanked him in a grudgingly kind of way, and then he left. But he didn't go far. And continued to watch this young woman and her, and her friend, who turned out was one of her men-at-arms. And began to ask about her and look up information about her. And it turns out she was quite well-known in these areas as an ally of the king, and, uh, of some of the f kingdoms around the area. They had participated in several large and great events. In fact, were single-handedly responsible for returning this king to power from a coup several years earlier. And Quan liked what he heard. But he wasn't sure yet. So he slowly made his way to Paxable, which is where he heard that they were going to end up next. It took him a while to get there. He didn't have the money for a boat. Uh, so he had to work on a ship that was going that direction. Protection, fishing, whatever the case was. And when he got there, he started asking questions again. Found even more tales about Mercy and her friends. And he wanted to get a, you know, a bit of a closer look. So again, getting back into his beggar-like garbs, started kind of hanging around their house. And sure enough, run into Mercy. While they're trying to you know, hear and see what they're about, Mercy snags up on him, gives him some money, brings him to the house and feeds him. You guys may be remembering these incidents from the past. The things that I said, are, oh, these were just little RP moments for Mercy and Ulrich to get to know each other. As I played it off to the characters, they were too. Um, but this was, in fact, Quan finding out everything he could about Mercy. And then suddenly they were gone. It's up and left, and he wasn't sure why. So he uh, decided, well, I'm going to follow. Maybe learn more. And as they did, very soon after they got past the Valley of Sacrifice, because he was a distance back, he was able to snag the drow, who were being very sneaky about not being caught. But after a short period, he became well aware that they were following our hero group. So Quan says that when his father passed away, he said, how will I know the right Lord? I had a whole, I apologize. I don't, I don't have this part written down because I don't, I, I never did for some reason, but it was a speech along the lines of look not for someone with power because power can corrupt. Uh, not look, do not look for someone with innocence because innocence can be lost. Um, seek not for great deeds, not for great battles. Um, but the end line was something along the lines of uh, seek someone with mercy in their heart and who rules through mercy, something like that. And you'll know that you're serving the kind, the kind of Lord that you can put your trust and honor upon. It was much better written. I had it on a little scroll that I gave the characters because he'd written it down. But the scroll somehow got lost, so I don't have the exact words. So when she said his name was Mercy, that's what snagged him. And he's like, Dad, really? Like, were you having a moment there where you're almost dead? Is this something I need to know? You know? And so that's why he was caught off guard. Even when we had that scene way back in the beginning, when Ulrich and them were hanging out, I mentioned that he seemed puzzled when she said her name was Mercy, but then let it go. Uh, because it was that that kind of 
clued him in. So it's at this point that he also asks for permission to serve. He goes, I've, 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 you know, I goes, I can't say that I'm ready to, you know, serve under you for the rest of my life. But from what I've seen and what I've been told, you're the closest I've come. So I would like to basically hang out. He had a much fancier way of saying it. He goes, I would like to follow you as well. I ask only, I do not ask for pay. I don't ask you to take care of me. Ask only to allow me to travel with you um, so that I can make a judgment on whether or not I shall choose you as my Lord. And the way he said it was in a, you don't have much choice in this fucking matter. I'm going to decide whether I choose you or not. If I do, then then I'm your, I'm going to be your man from this point on. I'm going to be your servant. I will be the protector of you. Whether you like it or not, it's, it's, I'm going to be there. But if I don't, I'm going to bumble off and find somebody else. Um, and so Mercy was like, I'm not sure how I feel about that. He goes, you'll be fine with it. And he's like, he goes, now let me tell you what I know of the drow. <laughs> and then suddenly they're like, okay, well, let's get back to that then. Because again, this seems, could be a little fishy as well. It's not. I'll throw that at you. It's not fishy. But it could have been. I played it off like it, oh, is he really a good or bad person? But very early, very quickly, they learned that everything he said is true. Quan is not a bad dude. Oh, excuse me. I'm in just a moment. Okay. So, with his belief that the drow are very likely going to attack them this evening, as drow work better in the darkness, um, he proposes to set up an anti-ambush. Let them think that they're coming in to take over. When in truth, they will not be. And number one, they don't know about Quan, so that's an extra man that they don't know about, um, which will help. And he specifically chose this spot to tell them because there's some trees around the little lake. There's a lot of different ways they're going to be able to hide who they are. Um, and Tobias is overwhelmingly helpful here because, as I mentioned, he has small illusions and cantrips. It's very easy for him to make small illusions that appear like there's someone sleeping in their beds. Uh, when there technically is not. Um, but there are six drow. I, I think I... Did I say that? Let me find my there. Make sure I'm giving you the right number. Seven. I'm sorry. There are seven drow. I miscounted. Um, and, yeah. So that evening, while they're fake sleeping, well, they're not really sleeping, they're just kind of hanging out in the woods and hiding in different areas. Tobias has the ability to make himself invisible, but no one else. Uh, so he does. Um, he has a very important job of once he hears the, 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 whatever the command word is, whenever he hears the word or the warning, uh, he's going to set a big bonfire, he's going to cause a bonfire to flare up. Not in a way to damage, but more in a way to create a large amount of light very quickly. That's going to be his first couple of spells, is to produce as much light as he can. Because again, Drow being a more underground race, uh, not as bad as in typical D&D. Mine, you know, they, in typical D&D, they walk out of the cave and they're blinded for months on it. It's not like that. They, they can still travel around during the daytime, but it's challenging. It's difficult. They spend most of their lives underground. Uh, so they will receive negatives when fighting in the light. Uh, you know, well-lit room even, uh, Dura will get a negative. At the same time, they get bonuses and perks when fighting in uh, darkness. The darker it is, the bigger the perk. That's how I play them. That's not... D&D canon, specifically. That's that's my alterations on it. For Merge Worlds. Um, so, sure enough, the attack happens. 
uh, as Quan had warned. Um, it turns out to be six warriors and a priest um, of Pandora, who, of course, is the god of lies. Let me give you the specific the god of uh, lies and illusions, isn't it? Let me give you the exact name. Uh, deception. That's right. Goddess of deception. Uh, the drow god on my world. And the battle happens. Fortunately, nobody's seriously hurt. They are unable to take any of the drow alive because the drow, they're not going to let that happen. Um, Quan was instrumental in the battle. Did a very good job. I made a point of showing off how good he was. Uh, Quan rolls as a fighter thief. Um, so he's dual wields, uh, much like Ulrich does, but better. Uh, but he has a lot of the thief traits as well. The hide and shadows move silently. Uh, he doesn't have as much on the pick locks and stuff, but all of the more sneaky stuff, he's got that down. Um, and so that's that's a lot of his perks and a lot of his abilities. Uh, make him a great oh, spy or scout or infiltrator. Um, his looks uh, make, that, make some of that a little bit harder, of course, because uh, he is an Asian guy, and unless you're in an area there's a lot of Asian... Because there are, you know, in Merge Worlds, there's every race. White, black, Native American. There's all that kind of stuff, right? All the kind of things. They wouldn't be called Native Americans. They wouldn't be Native Merge World. We'll get to them later. But there are all the different races you would find on Earth, plus many, many more. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of colors and creeds in this story as we move along. Um... But he is definitely of, of, an, of an Asian. I say Asian because it's not specifically Japanese or Chinese. I, I'm not trying to pick a specific one there and then say something wrong. It's not important. It's of an Asian lifestyle is what I, I would say in that regard. Of, the, of a medieval era, I should say. That's as well. Okay. So that battle happens. And then Quan gets to stick with them. So, let's have a chat. They then continue to travel. Quan very quickly acclimates. You'd think he'd be more of the quiet brooding type. No, he loves to chat. And he loves sharing stories. And he gets along very well with Ulrich. But he also gets along exceptionally well with Dandy. Because Quan is from a world where Kendra do not exist. And he loves her stories. Takes a while before the other ones can convince him these aren't all accurate stories. Half of them are completely made up. But overall, he loves the stories and comparing and telling his stories and talking about epic battles. And he will literally seek out to hang out with Dandy. Again, nothing romantic there. He just likes hanging out with her. But at all times, he's not more than a stone's throw away from mercy. Um, they continue north. For the first time in weeks, if not months, you see civilization on the horizon. This is them traveling north. At this point, like I said, they're traveling between 10 and 12 weeks. They're, they're rocking two or three months. They've been traveling a long time. Time flies, but I wanted you to be aware of how long that was. Ahead appears to be a small town, and as you approach, you hear a bell ringing. Near the edge of town, several human men appear. There are about nine of them, dressed in leathers and tattered clothes. Each is armed, though their weapons are of poor quality, and several only carry pitchforks. 
They all look tired and ragged, and you can see many of the homes and buildings appear to have been recently damaged, and the lingering smell of old smoke hangs in the air. Turn around and leave, you bastards, one of them yells. You'll not be putting your hands on any of us again today. I probably had a thicker accent when I wrote that the first time. <laughs> they stop, of course. They're not going to be charging in. They're being told to stop. Um, the main three come up in this situation, which is Darsh, Mercy, and Ulrich. Quan stays back, and Dandy stays back at this time. Because, again, while Kenders aren't normally a threat, not a lot of people want them in their town. So she, she's asked to hang back a little bit. A little sad, because she wants to see what's going on. But those three make their way forward. It only takes a moment for people in the town to realize these aren't who they thought they were. Um, and the fact that there are two clerics behind them wins them over completely. Once they see Artemis and Misha, they're good. In fact, they're relieved. And they kind of pass Darshan them to them. And, and you know, at that moment, uh, Lucas is like, hey, you all better back up. But don't be rushing in here. I will behead you all if I need it. That's the kind of look like, hmm? Hmm? Slow down. But they come and immediately start saying, ma'am, please, ladies, there are, are injured. And, could you be of any assistance? And, Artemis is immediately off her horse, and Misha follows Artemis. And Ulrich and uh, Lucas is like, oh, well, we have work to do. And then he's by their side, and they, they're brought into the town. Um, and, again, as I mentioned, the town's in poor shape. Still some, some small fires burning uh, of, of, like, what used to be homes and such. Um, but very quickly, uh, they're led to basically what was probably an inn of some kind or a larger home, uh, and they're injured inside, and Artemis and Misha get immediately to healing who they can. And you can see there's a lot of people in this building, some old people, some kids. Uh, nobody looks in their prime. In fact, uh, they're told that uh, they say that they were attacked the day before. Uh, this town is actually the town of Narnell. Um, over the past long period of time, months, um, the town has been attacked several times. Uh, first, it started out in the more farm sheds around. Uh, people just either not showing up again or ending up dead. That People in Narnell, this, this last attack which happened yesterday was the largest one they'd had and they just don't have the people to fight them. So uh, they were about to gather everyone they could and head north to a larger town of Moonbrook to seek assistance from their neighbors. Artemis is like, oh, Moonbrook. We too are traveling to Moonbrook. If you would allow, we would love to accompany you. Because they know they can, if there's people out there, they can help protect these old people and kids and stuff. Uh, and at the same time, continue to heal as they roll. Um, the town immediately accepts. Oh, yes, please. Clearly, we have a, some clerics here and a whole bunch of people here to protect them. Because, again, they, anybody who sees Artemis traveling with a Minotaur would assume, wow, she's got really good protection. Um, so, 
So let me see here. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Other things that they learned, because again, I have note points. If they ask questions, I this is a lot of time how I'll do an, uh, 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 an interaction. I'll have down, these are things these people know. If you ask the right question, I can release some of that information. Some of it makes it, some of it does not. You don't ask the right questions, you may not get everything. And I, I have a little dash before each one. I circle it if they got it. I exit if they never got that one. It's easier for me to remember because in the future, someone else may have some of that information as well. It's the DM trick that I use. Uh, the worst attack was yesterday by far. Um, and they also talk about on top of all of that, the whole area has been suffering for over a year. Crops aren't growing. Um, it's the worst crops they've ever had in, in decades. Farm animals um, are dying, are getting sick, and all that kind of stuff. Nothing seems to know why, but most livestock that hasn't been taken has died of diseases and such. None of this sounds good. Artemis, of course, not happy to hear any of this, is getting an idea. Okay, I've been sent to the north. The dark is happening. And bad stuff happening here. People being attacked here. We're right next to this town I was told to go to. It is possible that this is what I'm to get involved in. So it takes them the rest of the day to gather the refugees and go. They want to go as quickly as they can because they, they know they're going to be at a slower pace with all these people. Uh, some are still injured and sick and such. And so it's just not going to be possible to move fast. They don't have enough horses. They have a couple wagons. Uh, but there's not enough stuff here to get them, so most of them are going to be on foot. Of course, many of our Ulrichs and Quans and Darshas will give their horses to people that need them more, and they'll walk. Uh, they're in much better shape to do so. But all in all, after they leave, it takes about a day and a half to reach Moonbrook. Um, and that's because they're moving as fast as they can, but the refugees totally slow them down. Now, the entire trip, they do not see any of these marauders, as what the people describe them as, and they managed to make it to Moonbrook without incident. So about 22 total people in that group. Uh, but they're told that Narnell originally had a population of 350, if you include the neighboring farmhead, uh, farmsteads. Of those left, most are, they have there, mostly of older, uh, none of them would be labeled as in their prime, and there are very few children. This is information that they're given. Mostly older folks, nobody in good shape, even the men that came up with the pitchforks, older gentlemen, might have been fighters at one point, but they're not going to hold up against a trained force at this point. Now, when they get to Moonbrook, it's about four times the size of Nar Narnell. Narnell wasn't that big, so Moonbrook's bigger, but it's still not a massive town by any description. As they approach the town, again, several men, obviously of militia, come forward. Now, they greet the refugees who tell the attack. So as they're coming in, they immediately recognize the people, some of the people from Narnell. Because they've probably got families there, and people are crying. They're running, oh, mom, grandma, this happened. And, and then people come out and such. So very quickly, the fact that there's clerics here, which is their get-out-of-jail card 99% of the time anyways, and they've got a bunch of people they recognize, immediately nothing... No bad looks are given towards our characters. They're like, okay, you thank you for protecting them, etc. Um, another man comes from the town as well. And you can tell by the respect he's shown that he's a man of rank in the community. A little bit better dressed. Approximately in his 40s, uh, he's fit with a look of patience and intelligence. 
He asks himself, what is it, my friends? I'm so glad you're here. What has happened? And they tell the story just the same way they told it to, the, to our characters, our friends. He turns towards Darsh and Mercy in, the, in their, their pack and says, uh, Greetings. My name is Dabs McDermott. Yeah, Dabs. I love that name. And he's the mayor of Moonbrook. Thank you for assisting our neighbors. We are honored to have servants of the gods. The gods in our town. Because again, you've got a, two clerics. Technically a wizard too, which is kind of like a cleric of magic. And the Templar of Lucas. There's, there's a lot of religious stuff chilling right there in that group. If you would accompany me, we will see about getting you a place to sleep. And then we can talk. So, you see, of course, at this point, all of the refugees and such, they're being handled by the town. So the characters don't have to handle them anymore. They're brought in and such. Um, they are escorted to an inn named the Wanderer's Hearth, uh, which is Darsh... Oh, not Darsh. Dabs actually owns that. He's the mayor, but he also is the uh, innkeeper of the biggest inn in town. Um, and he uh, says that they're going to provide food and offers them a place to stay as well. And they accept it, because they do need a place to stay. They've not slept in a real bed in several months. Um, but they're like, yeah, sure, that would be awesome. And the food is brought in, and Dab sits with them at the table, gives them time to eat, and then they start discussion, because this is definitely not your normal group of wanderers. Clerics, mages, minotaur, kender, elves... So the average thing, pretty much everybody they've seen in town has been basically human. Uh, they haven't really seen any other races from that, at least not at the first glance. Narnell was all human. Um, so they start having the conversation, they start talking about what's going on. Um, and he explains that everything really started about six months ago. Uh, people started disappearing from their farmsteads. Farms very often would be found burnt. Um, from even a little bit before that, there was issues where the crops were not growing well, and uh, animals almost basically just wasting away. Uh, they checked the waters for poisons, they checked for toxins in the, in the food they were given, but they couldn't find anything. After a time, people started, especially on the outer areas, started those that were still alive, started making their way into the cities for protection, um, and that's when the attacks started happening on the towns themselves. Um, Moonbrook is kind of central. There are several towns in this area. Um, but Moonbrook is the largest of all of them. Um, now, they say that uh, from what he's being told, the attack on Narnell the day before is by far the worst attack that they've seen. Um, but as their numbers are dwindling, it appears these marauders' forces are only getting stronger. Uh, in fact, they've heard absolutely no word from the town of Oakleaf in several weeks. Um, now, it says here, because I keep good notes, that the marauders always seem to be coming from the west. That's a plot point. <laughs> and that they seem to target women, capable males, and children. So they... Very often, rarely do they find them dead. They just seem to be disappearing. Children, women, men in good shape, middle-aged, capable men. The old and the, and the, the they're not really brought. 
And he talks about the area and such. And he gives them a brief history of what this area was like. That originally, the area that they lived in was the north end of a great kingdom. And the kings that had ruled that land, not good people. People were kept poor, poor, overtaxed. At no point did they have any way of really defending themselves. They were drastically outnumbered by the warriors and knights in the king's employ. And so the kingdom was horrendously run into the ground. And then the merge happened. And sure enough, within just a few miles south of Narnell, everything that was there was gone. And now it's this new plainsy area. The king and his castle and everybody that was south of them just gone all of a sudden. And they were ecstatic. Here was a chance for them to finally be out from underneath that boot. There were no other, after the merge, they, they didn't find any other large cities or buildings anywhere around here. Um, it was just them in the middle of nowhere. This was a chance for them to, to finally maybe you know, get out from underneath the spot they were in. And things were going well for the first year or so. Until all this started happening six to eight months ago. And now it's, they say it's, it's just like being back under the boot of our old lord. They, of course, in Moonbrook. And at this point, Artemis is still feeling the pull to the north. At first she thought, I have to get to Moonbrook. That's where I gotta go. That's the word that I heard. The gods spoke to me. But now that she's here, she still feels a pull to the north. So she, she asks, what's north? They say, well, north is mostly forest area. We do have some lumbering along there. There's a lake and some such, but uh, nothing of, of major size. There's no kingdoms or anything up there. It's just a massive forest to the north. We use its lumber from time to time. Uh, but it's a little distance. It's like a day or so north. So the characters start to talking. They're like, okay, if we were brought here to Moonbrook, we continue north. She's feeling the pull to the north. But Moonbrook was specifically spoken. These guys are having some trouble. Clearly they're getting affected by the stuff that's going on, the marauders and the such. They feel that maybe maybe this is why they were here. This is what they were brought to do. They sure enough just can't leave these poor people to be continually slaughtered and kidnapped. So after a little bit of talking, they get back to Dabs and they're like, you mentioned the town of Oakleaf. Yes, that's our most western town. It's the one west of where we are now. It was the one closest to that direction. Um, and we've not heard from any of them in like a week. The towns are not all... They all have their own leadership, if you will. While they're all under that evil lord back in the day, they're not like all of the mayor... Dabs is the mayor of all of them. They're all their own little individual towns because none of them wanted to be under anyone else again. But Oakleaf and Narnell and um, Moonbrook have always been close to each other and friendly and so trade and all that stuff. A lot of families living between the two. Narnell's daughter marries the son of a Moonbrook, you know, that kind of a thing. So the families are very mixed in that area. Oakleaf is a little bit more distance to the west, and there's two more to the east. But off the top of my head, I don't remember, uh, but we don't need to know them right now. We will later. <laughs> I'll look it up when we get there. Um, so the characters are like, well, you know, you haven't heard anything from them, and we have concerns. That whatever's going on here, um, who knows, the whole town could be wiped out at this point. Uh, you guys are not in the place to go check. Our companions, myself and my companions, this is what Artemis says, 
we've decided we're going to go ahead and go to Oak Leaf and see if we can find uh, what's going on there, make sure everybody's okay. If not, worst case scenario, we bring them back here. Uh, Dabs is like, that's that's wonderful. Our brothers and sisters in Oak Leaf, we feared for them a lot, but at the same time, I just can't send men there and leave my town or my, our city completely unprotected as well. Not that what we have is going to do that much. Um, but I just couldn't do that. If you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be phenomenal. So like, okay, cool. We're going to get a meal here. We're not even going to spend the night. We're going to head out as quickly as we can because it's a distance away. So, sure enough, they leave. They get out of town a couple hours. They nap out for a little while then keep on going. Um, they leave just for... Uh, blah, 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 blah. The trip normally, a casual trip, would take about two days. So you're in your wagon, going to town to visit, take about two days. They press quickly on, hoping to shorten the amount of time. Um, and with them, they carry a letter from Dabs verifying who you are, that you're an ally, and that you're there to help. Um, as they make their way down a dirt road... They occasionally pass by burnt or an, or an empty farmstead. The crops sit in the fields unharvested. Many of them appear slightly withered or sickly and off-colored. By mid-afternoon, you, uh, it takes two days normally. They get there in a little over a day. Uh, they sleep the night and the day. Uh, mid-afternoon, you finally sight oak leaf in the distance. And even before you see the buildings, you can see the smoke. Great gray plumes billowing into the sky. Just a ton of smoke. And then they come up over the hill kind of thing, and there's the town just mushed up. Um, as they proceed in quickly and cautiously, which, funny enough, is how <laughs> these group of players entered every situation. Every time you find a dungeon, you find a this, you're going into the castle. Okay, we go quickly... But cautiously. It became a running gag because every time that's how they say it. Quickly but cautiously. I'd forgotten about that until just this moment. Uh, so they get into the town uh, and sure enough there's no sign of anyone alive. There are bodies. Uh, the smell of death mixes with smoke. Uh, nearly every building has been burnt or destroyed. Uh, there are corpses all throughout the place. Very few young women or children, but there are some. Now, we've got people in this party that are knowledgeable about stuff, so they're able to look at these things and verify. It looks like this was two to three days ago that this happened. Most of the fires have burnt themselves out at this point. Also, looking through the homes, it appears that most of them have been ransacked. Anything of value would have been taken. But they also notice... Looking, because they didn't. Whoever did it did not try to hide the fact that there are horse tracks and wagon tracks heading to the southwest. Again, two to three days old, at most. Both Dandy and Quan verify that. Very unhappy about this situation. Artemis, outraged. I mean, they're all outraged, but Artemis is like, "I came here to heal people. God sent me here, and the town's destroyed." Was I too late? Did I do something wrong? Was I meant to stop this from happening? A lot of second guessing going on there. Which, as a DM who's horrible, I fostered as much as I possibly could. <laughs> but the play, Artemis is, young lady who played Artemis took that, that stuff very seriously. <laughs> which I take pleasure in. That, that she's into her character that much. 
After a very short time looking around, they decide we got to make a decision. Do we go back to Moonbrook and say what's happened? Or do we try to follow this? See where they're going? Because the thought is, of course, some people may have been kidnapped. And wherever they're taking them, maybe if we can catch up to the wagons and stuff before they get there, we'll have a better chance of saving some people. We don't know where their destination is. There's no other cities out this direction that Dab said existed. So maybe there's a camp or something. We can figure it out. Because at this point, they, they were like, okay, these people seem like marauders, thieves, and slavers. That's what it seemed like based on the description of the people that they took. They decide to follow the tracks and not to return to Moonbrook. Because time is of the essence, and that would be wasting a lot of time. At first, they thought about sending someone back, like Quan, to let them know. But uh, Quan and Ulrich both made it quite clear that there was no way in hell they were letting Mercy walk into unknown danger without being there. So that ended up not happening. Lucas isn't leaving Artemis, and no one's going to throw Misha out there by herself. Ever. So that wasn't going to happen. So they decide to follow them. Now at this point, Dandy and Quan take the lead. They go quite a bit ahead of everyone else. They are scouting. Um, and meeting up every so often to let know, and they're like almost like a, a, a an intercrossing line. They're searching, and they cross, talk about it, searching. Um, they came up with that, was their thing. Uh, following the tracks, but they try not to stay right on the tracks in case something comes right back that way. They want to give everybody in the group as much knowledge, as, or, uh, for, for knowledge as possible. So, they continue to travel. It takes them almost two days before Quan and Dandy come back to the group and like, okay, we found him. There's a camp. It appears that there's a camp. Um, and it looks like there's a decent amount of people there. We didn't get too close. We couldn't. They have pretty good defenses, uh, like patrols. We could if we needed to. We want to let you guys know first you didn't come bum-rushing into this. Um, the camp, from what they can see, appears to be an old quarry. So imagine again just a big hole in the ground that goes down. They couldn't see how far away they were. But there's some of the big wooden things you'd expect that would lower pallets like the, the with, on a rope, cranes and such that would pull goods up. Maybe there's some mine carts up there. Uh, things that you would expect to see. It looks like they're down in an old quarry. And they could see at least 10 to 12 people. Uh, that were like the bad guys, the marauders. They'd already been described how they dress. They don't have any badges or uniforms of that nature, but they all are dressed pretty similar. Right? Like they're you, they like all went shopping at the same Walmart kind of thing. They they got their gear at the same location. Oh, I keep forgetting about that. Sorry. I got something I gotta remember before the store ends. Um, so they have to make a decision. They're like, okay, well, maybe we need to get some more information. Can Quan and Dandy, can you get in there and get us more info? And they're like, yes, we would recommend waiting until it's dark. But the one thing that they do want to stress that while there are big empty wagons there, there were no people. Didn't see any children, didn't see any women. If there is anybody that's here, either they got they kept on going with them or they're down in the quarry where we can't see them. And so the group's like, okay, well, Quan and Dandy time. And uh, they go in there and they start looking around. So... Um, 
Quan and Dandy make a really good pair because their skill sets are so common. Um, and a few of the things that uh, Dandy's skills excel in are skills that Quan doesn't have at all. Um, whereas Quan in battle actually could very often could do better than Dandy. Dandy's pretty strong for a Kender with her skills and her weapon abilities and such. But Quan being just a warrior over a straight rogue um, has just a little bit more damage dealing capability than Dandy does. Uh, so they, they complement each other well on missions of this nature, and they're both extra sneaky. Sometimes, because I want to say that Quan is a very stern to the point person. Like he's a nice guy, he's jovial and you know, chat and tell stories and such, but very honest, you know, business, business. Except he and Dandy keep getting in trouble from everybody else for competing. I bet I can get in there. I can get further in without getting caught than you can. I bet I can move quieter than you can. It, again, he's not used to Kender and not really egging, doesn't really realize that she's egging him into situations that can be dangerous. Uh, to him, it's just like healthy competition between friends to test their skills. So they sometimes have been known to cause a little bit of trouble for the group. Not today, but later. So, they get in there and they do their sneaky, sneaky around. And Dandy and Quan both decide to come at the camp from opposite directions. Worst case scenario, if one of them does get caught or snagged, they can head back out that direction. One's coming from the north, one's coming from the south. If they turn and run that direction, then neither one of them will be leading anyone back towards their allies, who are again, remember, coming from the northeast. Um, this will, and they're hiding and they're watching for that. They know this plan ahead of time, so everybody knows what to do. They can jump out and help if they need to, but they'll try to leave as many off as they can so the rest of the party can maybe bum rush in and do what needs to be done in the court. They're not going to try to let themselves be known, but that's the backup plan. I'm My my characters know early to be very detailed in their plans and backup plans, because if they don't tell it to me, they can't say, oh, we talked about this 20 minutes ago. No, you didn't. If you didn't tell me that's what you're going to do, then the cleric, who's 500 yards away and hasn't spoken to you in an hour does not know what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, Fuchi says, I love this. Oh, very good. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that, Fuchi. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, Midnight, you like it too. Yes. <laughs> yes, you're a squeaky boy, I know. Move this book, because he's going to jump up here and not realize there's a book and go sliding all over the place. Let me move this real quick. All right, yes, I know, you're a good boy. All right, so, um, where was I? Yes. So they're extra sneaky sneaky. Sneaky sneaky being official Dungeons Dragons terms where I'm playing. Um, so they manage to get in there and start looking around the best they can. They cannot get down into the quarry, but they can get to the edge of it looking down in. The quarry itself is actually not that big. It looks like it's a relatively new one probably no more than a year old. So there's a big chunk of space cut out, and there are ramps and such leading down, and there are several openings that lead into the into the ground, which would be opening of mine shafts. So it's part quarry, part mine shafts. It's, it's a combination. We'll talk about why later. Um, but they see that. They say that from what they're seeing, from bed rolls and little marks of previously made campfires, there are less people here than have been here before. So, their first thought, just looking at the numbers, and this is what they both came to later, that right now, the people that they see here, guards and such, 
appear to be approximately 25% of the amount of people that are normally here. Um, let's see. That, that, yes. Um, so they see about, like I said, an average 10, 15 people wandering around. They don't know what's down in the caves themselves, although one of the cave entrances does have what appear to be guards sitting outside of it. The other ones not don't seem to be guarded as much, but one of them does. So they head back and let them know what they find. There were four openings in the ground. I have maps of this too, but I can't show them to you because my camera's not pulling them up. Since I changed my lighting today. <clears throat> I used to be able to show it, but now it's just a glare. Sorry, I had to clear my throat, but I didn't want to blow your eardrums out. Okay, so they're like, alright, well we've got to get down in here. We need to somehow get in. We're going to make some plans. But right off the bat, they decide we need to get into that tunnel where it has guards. Because if there is anybody kidnapped or imprisoned, they may be in there. And if we can get them, that may give us more warriors or give us more people to help protect, right? Depending on if they're, you know, the situation. That's their hope. A lot of people have gone missing from here. Um, so they decide to go in sneaky sneaky. So going in sneaky sneaky uh, in this situation would mean, well, it's not something that Dandy likes to do. She understands the need of it at times. And that is to silence people without getting attention. So slitting of a throat, garrote, that kind of thing. Um, Dandy can do that stuff with her knife skills. She's really good at it. Quan, it's like, okay, that's what I need to do. Mercy says do it, I'm going to do it. But Dandy has a bit of a harder time. She doesn't like that. It's not very sporting. Uh, it's not really fair, she feels. But at the same time, uh, somebody brings up the fact that these people could be in league with the drow. Because they have a habit of using that against Dandy. She's like, really? You think so? She goes, well, you know, they did kind of come in, came across them at the same time. She's like, they did. And every time they find a drow, she searches for that one. She hasn't found it yet. Still doesn't know his name either. By God, she's looking for him. So Quan, Dandy, Mercy, and Ulrich are all going in sneaky, sneaky like. Uh, Ulrich and Mercy, um, nowhere near as good, of course, as Quan or Dandy, um, but they are relatively small. They're, they're all short. Ulrich's the tallest. Quan's uh, almost the same height as Ulrich. I think they're like one inch shorter. They're pretty close. Um, but uh, Mercy's pretty short, and if she's not wearing a bunch of her armor, makes clankety noises, she could probably sneak in there pretty easy. And she's been around Dandy enough that she's been shown some of the basics. And everyone she can take down without a guard's knowing, one less they have to worry about being a threat on them. So, that's the plan. And they, from what they saw coming from the north was going to be the best route, the actual north, the, the, the west, uh, because northeast led to the town, the direction they were coming in, and there was a lot more people, it appears, on the south, so like opposite that, like you come through the quarry and then keep going. And so that, to them, they, the way they look at it, that's where it looks like the people are coming from and maybe going back to. So they're wondering what's to the southwest, because Dabs didn't mention anything to the southwest. 
So they go in and they do their little game. So this was a half sneaky adventure, half combat adventure. Um, it gave Dandy and Quan. Dandy specifically had a lot of rolls and she would try to do things. Occasionally have to roll to see whether she stayed on target or chased a butterfly. These are dandy things you got to worry about. Um, but there were four entrances. And the fourth entrance is the one that has two guards sitting outside. I have it written right here. Two guards. How are they going to get down in there? In the moment, after they have silenced several of the guards, Mercy gets an idea. And quickly has both Ulrich and Quan dress in the uniforms of the people that they just killed. They're both the same size, regular sized people. Uh, the clothes may be a little tight, a little loose, but it's enough that here in the dark and torch lights, because it's nighttime. I think I said that, but in case I didn't, it's nighttime when they're doing this, of course. Um, this would be, you know, that makes it easier. They walking together might be able to get down in there, because they only see two guards down at the bottom. Most of the guards and such are at the top of the southeast side, where all the people I was talking about, that's where the main camp is above hand. Uh, the direction they're coming down, there's only one small ramp that gets down. There were a couple guards at the top. They were able to take care of them pretty quickly. Uh, and they did. They had to roll for that, but they did. Um, and it's more narrow, so it's a lot harder uh, to get down there that way. Um, but they're able to pull it off. And they dress everybody up. That's when they nod to everybody else. I don't know why I said nudge, but I might say nod or nudge. I don't know. They wave, whatever. And everybody else comes up and they prepare to make their way down. So Ulrich and Quan, human looking guys, bad guy looking clothes, chilling down the ramp, make their way up to the other guards, waving a little bit. They don't say anything. They don't know how these people speak. They may not even speak common. They have their own language. Submerged worlds. You never know. We dwarven language for some reason. They're not dwarves. Just kind of wave as they're walking, and the other guys at the table nod, whatever, and they go back to playing cards or rolling dice, whatever it is they're doing. Something gambling. Bad guys are always gambling. It's an addiction. If you ever find somebody gambling in a quarry in the middle of the night, probably a criminal. Just throwing that at you. Piece of information for you. Helping you grow. Um, give me one second here. I need to... Sorry, starting to starting to get a little bit sore here. I apologize. Just a minute. Okay. So they sneak down in there, and pretty successful. The guys are kind of chatting and such, and Quan and. Uh, Ulrich are making it look like they're talking to each other and you know, talking mumbling enough that you can't hear them. They're not even real words. Like, hey, are you? What'd you have for breakfast today? Pancakes? That's delicious. You like syrup on there or strawberry? You know, just better conversation that they can hear, but they can't tell what it is. And they just casually start walking up. Um, and they're almost right on top of the guys before the guys realize they don't know who they are. Uh, and quickly, Ulrich and Quan rush in and are able to take them down with very, very little noise at all. Everybody kind of holds and waits a few minutes. Nobody comes rushing down after them because they're waiting to see if any sound is heard. But after several moments, they realize they were successful. There's no activity at the top because they're kind of underneath where everybody is up top. Quickly as they can, everybody starts rushing down. They drag the bodies inside the edge of the cave 
and then Ulrich and Quan take their positions at the table, uh, rolling dice, and hopefully don't become evil by gambling. Uh, they continue to, to hold that charade while everyone else goes in. Not normally into that, but it makes sense. It's a good thing. If somebody does look down and the guards are missing, it could be a problem. So, it's not that well lit other than just a little bit down here. Some torches outside the other entrances. So, they make their way in. And they travel down a tunnel. And it goes quite a distance. Uh, mostly sloping downward, but it's relatively smooth. You can fi- They find things cast to the side, like pickaxes or you know, busted axes and old lanterns. Things that clearly this was a mine at some point, but it does not appear that anyone has been mining in quite a while. So, if they took over this quarry, it wasn't to mine, at least not in this tunnel. Uh, let's see here. As they make their way down, the tunnel forks. and they don't know which way to go, they decide to go left. Because <laughs> they always go left. These characters always go left when there's a choice. Just became another one of those things that they always do. Made it easier for me to pre-plan stuff, but that's what they like to do. So they go left, and they go a short distance before they start to hear murmuring, talking, and such. So they go quiet. Dandy now is doing the sneaky-sneaking. Quan's still outside. She gets out up there and around an edge, and sure enough, she sees that there have been bars, like like a jail bars with a door, built into the tunnel ahead. Through it, she can make out what appears to be a bunch of figures. They appear to be female. Outside of that, there is a really, really big dude. Like a big dude sitting in the chair. Not a giant. He's still a human. But he's a really big human. And he's just kind of sitting in a chair next to a little table with a light on it. No dice for him. He's by himself. He's kind of got his head back and he doesn't look like he's asleep. Just kind of looks like he's just leaning back. Just kind of chilling. And as Danny looks, she's like, okay, here's a big guy. He appears to be guarding a whole bunch of what could be women and maybe maybe men. She couldn't tell. She heard some high voices that sound like women. And so she's like, okay, I can go back and tell them. So she goes back and tells everybody, and they're like, okay, well, one guy, that's good. That's a lot easier. Probably didn't expect anybody to get down this far. We need to get in there. He's probably the one that has the keys. And they're like, well, let's go. They went a little bit crazy there. They were very confident in themselves. So they go around the corner. And as they're coming around, dude's already standing up. He heard him tromping down the, the alleyway. Way more feats than normal. And he's standing there, um, and in his hand, he has a big cudgel. Right? This big club. The guy's got to be close to six foot six, six foot eight. Tall dude. Very muscular. Actually, he looks like he's muscular, but he looks like he used to be a bit more muscular. You know what I'm saying? Someone's really big, but they lost a little weight. I like to think Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he first became uh, a governor. Like, really big Arnold, but then he was turned out to be a little thinner after that. Still big, but not as big as he was. Does that help? That's what I'm going for. Uh, oh, uh, Baby Gizmo. Hey, hello. I'm just here to tell you thank you for all your Sky Factory 4 tutorials. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that, baby. Thank you for coming by and letting me know. I'm glad they were helpful for you. Thank you so much. Awesome. So, um, so yeah, guys, cudgel. And in a kind of slow but calm voice, he's like, 
What's the password? And the characters look at each other. And Darsh draws a sword. He goes, this is the only password I need. And Darsh starts moving in. And and big guy gets shaking his head like, oh man. So Darsh comes in quick. But the guy's fast. And he moves real quick. And literally knocks one of Darsh's legs out right on him. Because Darsh swings over him as he drops down. And Darsh hits the ground hard. Not super injured, but enough to stun him. He's not going to stand up for a round or two because his knee was bonked. This is a relatively thin tunnel, so everybody can't come charging in. And now there's some stirring in the cages behind because they're hearing this going on. Mercy comes in. Starts coming at with weapon. He's defending. She's clearly better match than him. And next to Mercy is Dandy who scoots in as well. Dandy's small. She can get beside someone in a small space and still do stuff and not be in the way as bad. Still, sometimes she's in the way. But not as bad. So the two of them, and clearly they've outmatched this big guy. Like, he got a good, easy hit on Darsh because Darsh was a little bit overconfident. But these guys are now coming in a bit more prepared, and he's very quickly being beaten back. At one point, he just stops and rushes backwards, turns and runs. And he runs right through the door. So the door wasn't locked. It opens. And he tries to slam it behind him. And it looks like he's looking for something to put against it so they can't get in. Well, Darsh is up by this point and sees that and just rushes shoulders into that door, hits it hard enough that the big guy goes flying backwards and everybody comes rushing in. At this point, they see in this room a whole bunch of people. Did I write down how many? No. A whole bunch of people. Clearly townsfolk. Men and women. These people are clearly not wanting to be here. And immediately stand between the heroes and the big guy. Which confuses them. Our heroes put their weapons back a little bit, step back, and they're like, we came to save the people of Oakleaf, Narnell, and Moonbrook. Are you the people taken from those cities? And many of them are like, yes. They're like, here. And he pull out the letter from, from Dabs. They're like, this is from Dabs. And the guy reads it, and like, I know Dabs. Yes, this is his seal. Dabs sent these people. And they're like, oh, really? That's, oh, we didn't realize that. That's pretty cool. And they're like, what's going on here? And the big guy steps up. He's a big guy. He's got some marks on him now. He took a little bit of a, of a hit there. Especially from Darsh's run against the wall thing. And he apologizes. But he introduces himself as Seamus. And he said that Seamus is also one of the townsfolk from this area. But that he was put to guard the men and women. And to not let them escape. And... Why? Because the leader of these groups has his little sister. And if he doesn't do as he said, all sorts of horrible things were threatened against his sister. Our heroes really like these bad guys even less at this moment. 
they advise them that one of the other tunnels is where all of the children are being kept. Again, and then every so often they come in here and they take people out and they never come back. And then bring new people in and take more people out and they never come back. They do appear to be slavers, but they also take anything of value they can get a hold of. So all their jewelries and such and coins were taken. Uh, but they look like they deal in people more than anything else. Which again, makes our characters in here very unhappy. Don't like that kind of people. So, Seamus says, I can't let these people leave or he'll kill my sister. And they're like, okay, we understand that. And we, we, we were worried about your sister. Listen, we got through the guards, we got to here. Where is your sister? Is she with the other kid? We will go get your sister. And then we'll get you all out of here. There are a lot of you. You drastically outnumber the people that are out there. And they're like, really? How many are out there? And they give them the numbers and they're like, there's way more than that. Which means they're probably out raiding another city or like farmstead section where there's a bunch of... They're out doing something. They're normally not gone for more than just a couple of days. So our heroes learn time is of the essence and they've got to hurry. So they're to Seamus gives them a brief layout. In this room, because there's, there's three other tunnels, right? One of those tunnels is where the children are kept. Uh, if they'd gone the other way where the forks was in this one, they would have actually got to a, an end where there's supplies of foods and waters that Seamus uses to bring them foods and drinks and such. Um, oh, sorry, a heating pad stopped. Ugh. Okay, so um, one of the other big tunnels is where all the loot is, where they've taken from the other valuables, coins, treasure, weapons, things of that nature. Um, if they can get some of the townsfolk to that, there's some weapons in there that they may be able to use to help fight their way out. And then the last tunnel is where... G uh, G What's his name? Hang on a second. Jog. Jog, who is the leader of these guys, who is a cleric himself. That's his chambers. And they're like, if, you, if, if most of the people are gone, Jag is with them, because Jag, he leads the group on any type of battle-type situations. And then they ask another important question. He says, did you see the elites? And they're like, I don't know what you mean by that. So there would have been two men. They're always in twos. Head to toe in black. Normally their faces are covered. They're not ninjas, but they wear cl head close to that. They wear normally like different armors and such. They would wield two swords. Um, and they are badasses, for lack of a word. They're basically overwhelmingly dangerous. Uh, they're the personal guards of Jag. Um, and they never speak except to each other. Even to Jag. They've never heard anyone speak to Jag. Them speak except to each other. No one's ever heard their conversations. They only speak when they set aside. Um, but the elites are very, very dangerous. And they sometimes are here. Sometimes Jag takes them. Sometimes he does not. So that's something to watch out for as well. So... Ninjas. Not necessarily ninjas. Like, they're not all ninja weapons. Like, they're not all sneaky kind of things. They're kind of like ninjas, but not exactly. 
Because they're wearing, like, actual... They wear, like, in armor. You know, they're not just in cloth. Like, they'll be wearing actual, like, chain mail and such. Um, all black, of course. But, you know. Something like that. Don't judge me. <laughs> I need more apple juice. One moment. Okay. So, um... What do we got here? So, they, uh... Jump in, uh, and they're like, okay, we need to check the other rooms first. So they go to check the room where the supplies are to verify that there's no one in there blocking the weapons. They go in there. Sure enough, there's like one or two guards in there. They take them out pretty quickly and easily. The guards in there were doing some type of heinous gambling, I'm sure, and weren't really paying attention. Most of these guards are well-trained warriors, uh, and in a regular fight would probably be adequate. Uh, but they keep getting caught on... Unaware because no one's threatened them at all in this stuff. You know what I mean? They've been here messing with this area for six to eight months without any anyone fighting back per se. I mean, it's the towns and such, but nothing coming here looking for stuff. So this is the first one of these issues they have. They've gotten lazy, which Jag will not be happy about. Okay, here we go. There we go. So they. Then, once they verify they can get to the weapons, you know, because again, Quan and Ulrich are still chilling outside like guards. Because they don't know if someone's ever going to change the guards. Seamus is like, there's no real pattern to it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So they're like, like we got to get into the, the last one, because supposedly his, the children are in that other one, and then his, his sister should be in there as well, or she could be in where the head guys was. He doesn't know. Seamus only occasionally gets to see his sister. Uh, like, he'll bring him out into the middle of the room, or the middle of the courtyard, and he'll get to see her for a couple minutes, see that she's alive, and then he's sent back in to guard everybody. Big guy. Really large guy. Very muscular. The wasted away part is he was clearly a big guy, but he doesn't get to take care of himself here like he used to. So I was saying a little bit of the wasted. He was very big before, uh, but now he just sits in there trying to, you know, guard friends and family, right? So they save uh, the, all the people, they find the weapons, and sure enough, the last thing they do is they go to check the main guy's room. And when they go in there, the only thing they find are a couple slave women that unfortunately are there for the reasons you would think. Uh, they offer them to free them to come with them as well, which they overwhelmingly accept. And in the children's, they find Lyra, which is Seamus' sister. Inside this room, they don't find much of value. A few kicker things, some coins here and there. Nothing of value to keep other than a letter. Which appears to be a letter to Zhang. Ordering, or not ordering, but advising him to speed up the amount of slaves taken from this land as there are new needs for them in the south. And it is signed Lothar of the Nine. Some of you all might want to remember that name. Sorry, I'm leaning back like this because it's making my back feel a bit better. So I'm not trying to be Goofy or leaning back, it's, I need to put a little pressure on my back against the heating pad. So I apologize. If you can't hear me, tell me, and I'll adjust myself and talk louder. Um, but Lothar of the Nine, 
The only other things that they find in this room, of course, some priest-like trappings, robes and or such, and of course, a small altar of a follower of Pandora, the goddess of deception. We've talked about her today already, haven't we? Yes. Oh, hello, Teresa. <laughs> Glad you're able to make it by. <laughs> so, they find that he, yes, they knew he was a cleric, but they didn't know which god. Pandora, goddess of deception. Now, who else likes Pandora, goddess of deception? I think we talked about that earlier. They realize they need to get out of here. Especially if guys have a whole bunch more warriors and such coming back. Then it's something that they need to deal with. So, they start getting everybody weapons and such. They run forth, back them into the cage. Somebody keeping a lookout. So they get everybody free. Everybody who can't fight is going to try to get the kids out of there. But who can fight is going to help. Hopefully, Darsh's goal is to get to the top of the ramp on this end and hold the top. Mercy's going to come with him. Um, Ulrich, uh, Lucas, and Quant are going to hold the bottom while the clerics and Dandy run everybody in between. Uh, and as people are getting to the top, they'll help defend the top. While they're down at the bottom, they'll help defend the bottom until it's their turn to go up top. That's the goal. Because as they start running up there and you start seeing... Because there's a lot of people. I want to say there were... What's the list? I think it's like 82 people in there. Counting the children. There were a lot. Um, but nowhere near the amount that had been taken. Because as I mentioned, many of them were already taken to the south. And been gone for a long time. So... They start their plan and they get going. And overall it goes well. Um, eventually... People on the other side of the of the I'm drawing a blank. Uh, quarry. Sorry, top of the quarry. They uh, they realize what's going on. And sure enough, some of them start coming down that ramp, but more of them are rushing around to cut them off at the top where Darsh and Mercy are. And by this point, Dandy and Artemis and Misha have made it to the top as well. Um, most of the people are on the ramp or uh, at the top of it at this point. So they've got most of them out. The other guys, Ulrich and them, are going to be fighting their way up the ramp, holding the back, while these other people are trying to... Again, it's a thin thing, so a lot, of, not a lot of people are going to be attacking them. It doesn't appear they have a lot of ranged weapons, at least not at this current situation. Because I forgot about those. So, um, at the top, though, everybody's coming running around. And Darsh and Mercy immediately jump into battle. And um, Dandy does as well. Well... Artemis is kind of in the back. Her and uh, Misha are kind of chilling with the healing. So, just as a, a quick input to the story. Most everybody has some form of minion at this point. Darsh has several people back on his ship, right? Uh, Mercy now has Auric and Quan. Artemis has Lucas and Misha. Dandy's the only one without anybody specific. Technically, though, she had Michael at the very beginning, and if they ever get back... The, he was the first one. He had shadow. So, um, part of the reason that I brought Misha in, 
I can't tell you because that's for the story. But the other part of the reason I brought her in is when I start adding more people to the group, that means in an average battle situation, that's more people that are going to need healed. Um, and the amount of people that were growing in there very quickly started to outnumber the amount that Artemis was going to be able to heal. So bringing in another low-level healer that has just the lowest of spells but a chunk of them uh, was overwhelmingly beneficial, and it gave me somebody very inexperienced that they would then have to protect. Uh, puts them into a little bit of stressful situation because she's not able to handle herself as well as, say, Artemis or anybody more experienced. So that, that made things a little bit harder on them, while at the same time giving them access to more heals when they really needed it. So Misha filled that role, plus I wanted Artemis to finally take on someone directly under her kind of thing there as well. So that's a Misha thing. I want to mention that about Misha. So they are fighting this stuff, and it's going on, and our heroes, of course, doing much, much better. Most of the people were already camping or sleeping and are charging in completely unprepared for this. Darsh and Mercy and uh, are just chopping people away with Dandy helping out as well. Uh, Tobias is at the top now. He starts whipping some spells out, and they're very, very unprepared for that. The spells throw off a lot uh, because there are absolutely no mages in the bad guys group. It's another one of them things you might want to hang on to till later. So, oh, almost forgot a big important thing. Oh my god, horrible. The letter was signed by Lothar of the Nine, but it references the Empire of Oromon. That's also really important. I can't believe I forgot that get them back to the, you know, and it's not said that way, but it's like, you can get them to the Empire as soon as possible. Oromon is in need of more servant slaves, whatever. So the Empire of Oromon is where these guys are from. Should have mentioned that. Glad I remembered it while we were here in the moment. Uh, Ethan says, got the Ion Sniper and the Phase Rifle. Well done. Good job. <laughs> so good weapons to have, especially once you get a, get a good way to charge them. So, things seem to be going positively for our friends until the last few remaining marauders kind of step back and stop fighting and make way for two gentlemen dressed all in black to pass through these are the elites and this was one of the single hardest fights that they've ever had uh, the elites both dual-wield blades of impeccable quality. It's almost like they're connected at the hip. They're overwhelmingly agile. They're not doing flips and stuff like ninjas, but they're very quick at dodging. They move very uh, fluid-like. Um, and they seem to know what the other one's thinking. So one will block while the other one takes advantage of that, though they spoke no word. It's like they're two beings of one mind. And that is not an easy thing to fight. Um, both Mercy and Darsh took serious damage in this fight. Um, they probably would have been overrun had it not been for Tobias. Because the one thing these guys don't have the ability to fight that much is magic. And so Tobias whips off some even basic spells like magic, excuse me, magic missiles. That's enough to definitely get some attention and do some damage. Um, and odd enough, once again, it's Dandy that ends up scoring some of the best hits on them, uh, purely just from her 
she being even more agile than they are, um, gets to pull them off. But they finally do beat them. But it was a long fight, and I did a lot of damage. And they were using some throwing weapons that were incredibly sharp. They weren't throwing stars. Uh, they were just knives. But they would throw them, and even when they missed... Like, they were sticking into stone or hitting people behind Darsh. Some of the innocent people were getting hit from behind. And it was almost like they were doing that to kind of draw off their attention. Um, but it was it was a very vicious fight. The two guys said not a single word. At all. The entire battle. But they died. And then the last few marauders tried to run away. But I'll be honest, uh, the freed townsfolk didn't let that happen. And they killed them all to a, to a man. There's no one left alive when they're done. Um... Knowing that, again, time is of the essence and they've got to get out of here quick. They quickly grab what horses they can, hook them up to wagons, and they start loading up the children and the people in there as quickly as they can. And they start bumbling back out of here, heading straight for Moonbrook, because Oakleaf, there's nothing there. So, it takes several days, because, again, they don't all fit in the wagons. And some of these people haven't been walking in a long time. Like, they're hanging out in caves. They're not in good shape. It takes several days to get there, but they finally return to Moonbrook, and they've gotten there before anyone's caught up to them, at least. Um, Dabs, of course, excited to see so many townsfolks and such returned, but uh, very excited about that, but also very sad to hear about the fate of Oakleaf and all the lives that were lost there. Uh, they said that they did send someone down to Narnell. Uh, to see if there was, you know, any last stragglers that made up in from a farmstead. That's the town our heroes came through first. Uh, but it has now been completely burned to the ground. So another attack had happened there, happened there after they left. So they believe that's where the rest of the marauders were. And Jag was. While they were out there taking their people back. So it's only going to be a matter of time before he's going to bring the rest of his forces in here. To either destroy everybody or to take back what they can. Um... So, now our heroes have to help defend Moonbrook. And uh, they had about a day to prepare. Wasn't a lot of time. But all the basic stuff, people start wheeling in wagons and flipping them over. It's only a couple entrances into town from some of the buildings. It's a good-sized town. They're trying to, you know, they already had some defenses up already, thankfully. But they're doing everything they can where there would be gates to get into the town. They're piling stuff on their wagons so people can't get in and stuff. Um, there's going to be one moment in the middle of this battle that I'm going to highlight uh, very much. Because it's one of my favorite individual moments that has ever happened in a D&D game for me. We're going to get to that in a moment. Um, Seamus jumps in and begins helping as well. He's uh, still in pretty good shape. And definitely his, his sister's still in the town. He's got a protector. Um, so Seamus starts hanging out. Um, and everybody is prepping for the battle. And all the townsfolk that can fight, they actually got better weapons than they left with. So a lot of those weapons were uh, weapons that Ormond's marauders brought with them. Their extra cache of weapons. They actually got some pretty good stuff. The weapons that they took from the elites were both long swords plus ones. Each one was carrying two of those. Uh, I mention that because every elite is always carrying two long swords plus one at all times. So they had magical blades. Uh, and those get handed out very quickly um, to Seamus and everybody calling the people that need them. Uh, here's some stuff. Go, go, go. I think by this point, Ulrich already had one magical sword that Mercy got for him. Uh, but he fights scimitars, so they, these weren't going to help him. Um, so they build up their defenses. And sure enough, as night begins to fall, Zhang arrives with his forces. And there's not quite as many of them as they thought, but there's still a lot. 
Um, so, as the battle goes on, there are no more elites. He only had two of them, thankfully. But his forces are definitely doing a scorched earth kind of thing. So, there's a lot of fire being thrown. Um, he has magic himself, being a cleric of Pandora. Uh, he's like a fighter cleric. But he's throwing a lot of uh, the spells that are fire-based. Uh, they have even some magical potions that are basically the same as a Molotov. Um, oil of fiery burning, if you're ever interested. Uh, you throw it and it can't be put out with water. It's an oil that just burns and burns. Um, but they throw a lot of that stuff. So the, a lot of it was fire-based before the combat even started. Uh, some people in the town had some ranged weapons, some old bows and such here and there, uh, but not enough to do a lot of damage before the fight actually started. The battle takes a good chunk of the night uh, because there's a lot of fighting within the streets once they finally break through at different areas. Um, they all have really good horses as well, so uh, like cavalry style that are, are, are busting through. And Our heroes have good horses, but nobody else in the town really does, uh, so a lot of them are fighting at one point. But the one individual specific point I wanted to talk about is there is one point where Misha is basically, she's not brought into battle. She's left in what would be the hospital. So if people are injured, they'll drag them back to there. She'll heal them. Artemis was going to stay, but Artemis uh, wanted to go up to the front. But Lucas is like, hell no, you're not walking into a war. You stay back here, and that's what's going to happen. So Lucas wouldn't let her go. She's like, I outrank you. And he goes, and until the day you're bigger than me, that doesn't matter. You're not going anywhere. I'm here to keep you alive, damn it. And that's what's going to happen. And it was the first time Artemis literally stomped her foot in anger and such. And Mercy, doing all she can not to bust into laughter. Because she always wants to tell Artemis the same thing. Best friends and all. Well, during the battle, at one point, they see that things are, are going badly. Artemis goes to Lucas and she's like, Listen, my friends are up there. Other than Tobias, I'm the most powerful spellcaster here. And they have a powerful caster on their, a cleric on their side. I've got to get involved in this. It's the only way we're going to survive. Not happy about it, but Lucas is like, fine. And that message was delivered by Dandy. Dandy happened to come back, and she's like, I'll get you there. I brought a wagon. And sure enough, there's a wagon with a horse on the front. Because What else would it be, like a moose? No, it's a horse on the front. Calm down. So they get in the back, and Dandy starts busting tail, running this... Because at this point, a couple of the bad guys have shown up, and she's trying to run them, go break through them, getting them to jump out of the way, and she's just raring with these horses. <laughs> and it was just, this was Dandy's thing. Swear to God, this is what she came up with. But she's like, I'm like, you're going to come up to the wall, and you're going to run into it. And she goes, no, I'm going to drift. <laughs> like, you're going to what? She goes, I turn the horses to the left really fast. And that created the Moonbrook Drift, which has been referred to for years because a wagon does not drift. A wagon flips, and both Lucas and Artemis go flying into the sky as well as Dandy. As that wagon goes, whoosh, and they're all like, just flying through the air. And Dandy, of course, with her agility, uh, is okay, and Lucas is doing But um, Artemis landed like half in and out of a horse trough, so she's just soaking wet in dirty water. Uh, they all took some damage from it, but uh, the Moonbrook dr Drift, every time in the future, Artemis got wet for any reason, even if it's raining, they'd be like, oh, you doing some Moonbrook Drifting? Like, it just be, I'm a drift! I'm like, you can't drift a wagon, dude. So she just yanked it to the side, and that wagon just flipped 
Uh, and then crashed into four or five bad guys. It, it did some good. I Because they were taking damage in that, I thought I'd make it at least entertaining enough there. I was like, okay, she still was slightly successful. Her drift caused it to squish three, four, or five bad guys. Um, but the Moonbrook Drift, that is a, that's a t-shirt I want. The Moonbrook Drift. <laughs> a wagon with people just flying out of it. That'd be funny. Yeah, the Moonbrook Drift. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a great moment. Uh, and Lucas, of course. Lucas being the stalwart, like, we must go, I must protect you, and hoo-hoo, just flying through the air. Oh, good time. Artemis hates heights. She's flying. Funny stuff. Funny stuff. That was a, a great moment. But at the end of the night, they are successful. Uh, the main bad guy, Zhang, is defeated. Uh, it's actually Mercy that faces him one-on-one -on -one and defeats him. And the last few survivors of the enemy at that point take off. Uh, nowhere near enough of them to be trouble moving forward. Um, but they managed to do that. So, oh, uh, no, wait, wait, no, no, let me rephrase that. Nobody lived. I forgot. I'm sorry. Let me read the right thing before I tell you wrong. As the sun rises to present the dawn, the survivors stand together looking over the destruction caused by the night's events. None of the marauders still live, and around you the town folks pause for just a moment to revel in the fact that the threat is finally, truly over. First one, then another, then everyone raises their voice in a triumphant cheer. People crowd around you, thanking you for your actions. It's all the heroes. Dabs stands smiling beside you, bloody axe in his hand. Because Dabs, Dabs will throw down. You remember that. Giving you a wink, he begins to organize people to start cleaning the area. Corpses are looted and dragged out of the city to be burned. Because, you know, they're going to keep their weapons and stuff. Who knows, right? Uh, finally, after spending the morning helping, you are finally able to rest your exhausted bodies and you crash into your beds and sleep. So you, you help step most of the next day. You've been up almost 24 hours. They crash. The next day, you awaken well-rested and starving. You dress yourselves and make your way down to the common room. Dabs greets you warmly, and as Darsh's stomach grumbles, he laughs and tells you to find a table, promising a delicious breakfast. Because, again, Darsh's belly, notoriously loud. All the patrons at the bar greet you with smiles and wishes of good health. Uh, several rush to put tables together for your party, so you can all sit together. As the barmaid brings you drinks, several patrons thank you for your help and toast your long life. You have just basically saved this town. And during this, Mercy takes control of the militia. And I, I didn't really talk about that, but she starts saying, this is where we're going to defend. I'm like, I, I had a map. I'm like, where are you going to put defenders? Where do you think they're going to come from? How are you going to do this? And she took a very military standpoint. And her and Ulrich and Lucas and Darsh uh, did a lot of that kind of stuff, along with Dabs, who knew the area. Um, but it was Mercy's first chance to lead, ever uh, until way back in Thorman, but to actually lead in some type of a military venture. Um, so a lot of the people, while they're, all the heroes save them, kind of view Mercy as the one who was the leader of the whole situation. So they all get credit. She just gets a little bit more credit, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, so they bring tons of food and it sits with them. Um, everyone is eating and, and talking about the night's battle. Um, tells of the town's conditions. Uh, says thank, thanks them very much. Uh, and said, you know, and literally dabs, strong man, single tear. Uh, thanks them because in all of their history and all they've been through with the old kingdom and everything else going on, that's the only one in charge now. Everybody's, everybody's just listening. That's okay. Um, for literally decades, Mercy and her friends are the first people to ever help these people. They've been enslaved one way or another and abused and overtaxed 
and beaten down for generations. And for the first time, someone stood up and said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. And save them from that. And potentially, depending on what happens in the future, potentially save them for long term. Uh, so that means a lot to these people. No one's ever... It's like the, the, the bully who's been... People have been... The kid been beaten up his whole life in school and someone stops steps in front of the bully and says, not today. You know, that kind of thing. Um, soon after that, Seamus arrives. Big old Seamus. We like Seamus. He tells that two of his friends had arrived this morning, Lars and Wade, two brothers, last name Owens. And he was telling them what was going on and everything and they missed the battle had they known. They'd have been here earlier. But... After talking to them, he feels that Mercy and her friends may need to talk to them. And do they have a minute? Mercy's like, of course, yeah, bring your friends in. So Lars and Wade, I don't have their picture. I apologize. I forgot to load it up. But I will pull it up for next time. Because as soon as I pull them up, you guys are going to know exactly who the hell I'm talking about. You want me to tell you now or do you want to wait for the picture? You guys think on that for a second while I talk. You can wait for the picture. I can tell you who they are because 99% of you are going to know who they are when I tell you. Um, so, Seamus has told Lars and Wade, because they've been friends for years, uh, Lars and Wade are um, rangers that live in the woods to the north. Uh, you know, they skinning and such. They trade in towns and such. But uh, they were all good friends when they were kids. And then the two brothers kind of went up there. Jim Cooper wants to know now, please. Okay. Lars and Wade. Lars is the older brother by about a year or two. But he's actually a little bit shorter than his older brother, Wade. Have any of you ever heard of a television show called Supernatural? If you have, you know that show stars two brothers. Older brother being a little bit smaller. And the... Uh, Younger brother being a moose, a little bit taller. Uh, Lars and Wade are uh, Jensen and I can't remember the other guy's name offhand. Yeah, so the two two brothers of Supernatural, that's Lars and Wade. Okay. I would look them up right now, but I put Jensen Ackles and I can never remember the other guy's name. Um, I have a picture for them, but I, I didn't realize I did not save it to this, so I apologize. Um, but we have a big chunk of important stuff I want to get to before we finish tonight. But that's them. Uh, they are very perfect for these roles, as you will see as we move forward. So Lars and Wade come in, a uh, little in awe, because they've heard all these stories already in a couple minutes of, uh, of what all these, these group of heroes done and beating the bad guys and so on and so forth. Um, they've come from the north to tell them that something is wrong in the forest. Am I late, Pan Fam? Uh, Pan, we started a little over two hours ago. So you're smidge late. I'm going to go about another 20, 30 minutes. But this episode will be up immediately to watch afterwards. So if you want to catch what you've missed then, it'll be totally available for you. Um, so they say that there's trouble in the woods to the north, the Great Forest, uh, which is their home. They have come to tell them that the forest is dying. Uh, up in the north, slowly coming to the south, it's like... Some type of plague or something is literally destroying the trees and the plants. All the animals are dying. And when they find these animals, they are not in good shape. They are some type of disease or something. Uh, boils and festering, not good stuff. Um, and it appears to be going 
from the north down into the south where they live. They've come across it. So they went and visited the old cleric by the lake. And he told them to come to Moonbrook, but wouldn't say why. Only that it was imperative that they get to Moonbrook immediately. Again, they're both rangers. Young, live alone. uh, In the woods. Love the tales and the stories they heard of the battle and such. They're young, kind of adventure guys, right? Um, See this here. Yes. And... Uh, and then that the, the old man, the old cleric in the in the the old ta- there's an old temple just inside of the woods, um, and he said I we need to come here, but he didn't tell us why. And of course, Artem- Artemis, with a little bit of shakiness in her voice, asks, "May I ask who is the temple dedicated to?" And they say, "Why, Tavian, milady, same god that you serve." And immediately, Artemis knows that's the pull to the north. In that moment, she goes, that's where I'm supposed to go. And she tells that She turns and goes, that's it. That's, that's where we're going. We have to go there. Everybody's like, okay, we kind of assumed that. Cool, we'll do that. Um, Lars and Wade are like, well, we can take you there. We know the area. Uh, if you, once you're done eating and you get your stuff, we, we can get you there. Uh, Seamus asks if he may tag along. His aunt is watching his sister. Um... And he too knows the cleric in the north and uh, would like to kind of see what's all going down here. <laughs> you notice people keep hanging around here, right? Mercy agrees that Seamus may join them. Dab says, I will have you food and supplies packed immediately. It is a couple day journey. We'll get you there as quickly as we can. So now we're going to jump into some serious reading stuff because this is important. Okay? I'm going to jump into some serious, important goop rear. Uh, and as I said, everything's been building to what we've been doing today. But this next part, even more importantly so. So bear with me as I go through this a large amount of stuff that I wrote down. Soon your party is packed and preparing to head northwards once again. Led by the Owens brothers, you are seen off by most of the town. You are all easily viewed as heroes here. You've no doubt word of your deeds will spread to the other neighboring communities. Several men and women have made advancements, and you've all been offered homes to stay in, even Dandy. That's important. Uh, when I say advancements, like people like romantic, or you just need a place to stay, even Dandy, they're like, hey, you want to go to my house? Um, these people are literally looking up to this group of people. The people here are friendly and kind, and though there is a touch of sadness of a although they have a touch of sadness of a people who have only known hardship and persecution. It takes two more days of travel before you see the tree line in the distance. The forest is massive, as described by the Owens. Both young men and Seamus seem to flock to Mercy, asking her questions about her adventures and how she met the rest of you. They also spend a lot of time with Ulrich and Quan. The men quickly seem to become friends, and all of them together taking their cues from Ulrich. So very quickly, these guys, kind of in awe of mercy, but they're like, they, they, they see Ulrich as in, of all of us, Ulrich's her right-hand guy. So very quickly, they, they're like, we've got to do this. They look at Ulrich. Now they, they're taking his word over mercy. But if mercy's not saying anything, they look, Ulrich will say, what are we doing? And then he's like, okay, we're doing this. And the guy's like, okay, cool, we're doing that. Mercy makes decisions for all of them, but Ulrich is the one that kind of delivers this, those terms and such. Um... 
It's about 6 p.m. as you finally see the lake at the forest's edge. A large rise of land comes up and over the lake of its east side, overlooking the water. Far on the west side of the lake, a thin line of smoke rises from the trees, and Lars tell you that it is caused by the chapel's chimney. I'm going to take a moment to describe what we're walking into. I have a picture for this, too. I will, if I have to, I'll take a picture of my phone, and I'll get it on the website. But if you will, imagine a large lake. Not a huge lake. It's a good... You can see the other side of the lake. Okay? You can see the other side. But it's relatively deep in the middle. Fish. Probably little rivers and streams running into it. Okay? The tree line surrounds the northeast and west side of the, of the lake. So if you're looking over top, here's the lake. You're coming up north. The trees kind of hit the bottom. So the lake itself is open into the plains area down, but the tree line is probably half the lake and up. Now on the east side, a big hunk of land comes up. So if this is land, it comes up and curves, making almost like a, a, a land, like a, an overwatch over the lake. Like you could like go up this as a hill and look down. And it's big. It's a big hunk of land overlooking this lake. And they've got some trees on them and, and all that kind of stuff. I want to dis describe that. I will find a picture. Uh, you reach the tree line and enter the woods. There's a small, well-worn path through the trees. And you follow it for about ten minutes when you finally come to a small clearing with the chapel at its end. The chapel is modest in size, made of logs and stone. Behind it are a few trees separating it from the lake. The symbol of Tavian is carved into the wooden doors and a ways off sits a small shed and you can hear a small pony whine from inside. As you begin to dismount in front, the doors slowly open and a young human female steps out. She's probably around 14 years old and is dressed in common clothing. Mia, Lars says, embracing the child. Mia returns the embrace but never takes her eyes off the clerics. She steps before Artemis and bows and says, Milady, he has been expecting you. He has asked that only you clerics, your Templar, and the warrior woman enter inside to speak with him. He asks if the rest of you to please remain outside. Yeah, normally they don't like splitting up the group. This is Holy Land, Artemis can sense that. But he did say Lucas and Mercy can go, so that's pretty good protection. So they're like, okay, and they give their stuff, and they give their horses off to the guys and things, and they proceed to go inside. The chapel is warm and comfortable. A large, well-carved altar sits at the end of the room. Behind it is a large fireplace, and to each side stands a large pole with a banner of Tavian upon it. The altar has all the symbols and candles one would expect. Lying before it are several pairs of benches. The chapel is clean and well cared for. It's a very, very old building, but very sturdy. They can sense that they're on holy land. Clerics can do that. It's a thing. Not all holy land. Obviously, they're not going to know Pandora's because it's hidden, but uh, they'll definitely know if they're walking on an evil one, and vice versa. They can feel very holy here, is the point I'm making. Each of them take a moment to, to make a prayer, and that's what you do here, before being led by Mia through a door at the back of the room. It leads into a small kitchen area, which has a small door heading outside, and another in the back. Mia opens the back door very carefully, and slowly she motions for you to enter. This room is a small personal quarters. A small wooden bed sits next to a small desk, and inside is laying a very small human male. He smiles at you and motions Artemis closer. 
You are even more beautiful than in my dreams. I see the god walks with you, and I've been waiting for you all my life, Artemis, he whispers. He tells him that his name is Trevor, and that he has been the, the keeper of the chapel for almost 72 years. Mia's parents died when she was very young, and he's been looking after her, and she's kind of been staying here. And he knew that Artemis would be coming soon, because he knows that he is dying. Immediately, Artemis is like, you need a healing? Like, he's like, no, no. This is age. This isn't anything that can be healed. Uh, my God calls me home, and after serving him all this time, I look forward to finally getting to walk with him. He also mentions that he saw mercy in his dreams as well. My time here is short, says Trevor, and you have much to see. The God brought you all here for a reason, and it's time for you to know why. He motions to Mia, who helps him rise. His old blue robes are simple, yet in your eyes this man looks as regal as a king. You can see the power that is radiating from him. Mia hands him a walking cane, and slowly he leads you back to the, ch to the chapel. <clears throat> Once inside, he says, Mia, go outside, or says, says to Mia, go outside, child, and wait with the others. Mia nods and does as she is asked. Once she is gone, Trevor motions for you to sit, and you all take seats on the benches as he stands before you. Many, many years ago, a cleric was given a vision by our Lord Tavian. The cleric traveled for many months until he found the place of which he had dreamed. Upon arriving, he discovered a lake. Beside that lake, he found holy ground sanctified by the gods. He was made to know that a great uh, was made to know a great power and a gift to the world from Tavian himself. Again, the god appeared to him in the dream. He was to live on this land and to use the power there to help the sick and weak whenever possible. But mostly, he was to keep the land and protect it. For one day, there would come. There would come a time when one would come to use the full power of this land to defeat a great evil. So the cleric built a small chapel, and in that land he lived for many years. As his life neared its end, another cleric arrived, led there by the gods. He assumed the responsibilities of protecting the chapel, and this duty has been passed down through the centuries. As a young man, I received the call from our Lord Tavian. I traveled here where I replaced a woman named Dara. I was content to live out my life here, waiting to pass on my sacred duty as she passed it on to me. But then the merge came and changed everything. From travelers I learned what had happened, but my duty remained the same. So here I stayed, waiting, keeping the chapel. But then a year ago I sensed a great evil enter into the woods to the north. The animals and the plants began to die, and here on this holy ground I was protected, but I could sense the northern evil growing. It was then a couple of months ago that my Lord Tavian came to me one final time. He told me that I had done well and that the time had come for this land to serve its great purpose. I was shown a vision of you, Lady Artemis. I was told you would come with many others and that, and that two that two were your chosen, destined to help. One other of your company had also been chosen, but by another, and that the two of you would guide the light into this new world. A tear falls from Trevor's eye. 
I woke from this great dream and knew that I was dying. I take great joy in knowing that I shall soon sit with my Lord. But you, Lady Artemis, have much still to do. But first you must understand what this is all about. He motions for Lucas and Mercy to stand, which they do. And he tells them to go and pull down the flags, which they do. They pull them down. Directed from the two poles that are holding up the flags, they're directed to set them underneath the ridges of both sides of that altar. So you imagine the top of the altar, like a kitchen table, sticking out further than the legs, even though it's solid. Solid all the way down, but the top part is sticking out. They place the poles under it and find that it's slightly grooved, and the poles fit perfectly inside of those grooves. And they're told to lift it. It's heavy, but surprisingly nowhere near as heavy as it looks. And Lucas and Mercy are able to slide it forward, revealing underneath of it a small, narrow set of stairs carved into the ground. Uh, but, but I should say that. The altar slowly slides forward, where once sat, there's a small staircase leading down to the ground. Trevor's staff starts to glow with a bright light, and he motions you to follow as he begins down the stairs. The stairs go round and round, deeper into the cool earth. You estimate you're about 100 feet underground when the stairs finally end at the beginning of a thin tunnel. You follow it for just a few yards till it turns and you find yourself in a chamber. The room glows brightly. Trevor's light reflects on the water that fills most of this chamber. God, I hope I'm using the right one. Stalactites? That's the one that hangs down from the roof, right? The one that hangs down from the roof. Uh, the stalaggy thingies. Stalaggy thingies of quartz-like crystal hang from the low ceiling, some into the water itself. None of them have ever felt as peaceful as they do at this very moment. The water fills them, just looking at it, with this serenity, and you feel rested and whole. Trevor smiles and raises his hand. Behold, Tavian's tears. This water is... Imagine a chamber filled of holy water, ten times stronger than holy water. Supposedly, tears of the God himself, spent onto the world, the suffering of his people, to be used to ease that suffering. This water causes the land that the temple is on to be incredibly holy, sanctified ground. Evil things walking on here, especially get to mages and uh, things of not goodness, walking on this land would take serious damage. It just is protected from that. Now, that's not to say everything. An evil dragon flies down, it may be strong enough to not worry about that. You know, a lich walks on the ground, we're fine. But the average schmo who's evil, and I'm not talking about like a rogue. A rogue is fine. I'm talking about people with magical evil god powers. That's probably the best way to say that. Um, the water itself acts as a healing. Um, not like a, a healing potion by any means, but it does have some uh, abilities which we'll get into as we move further. Um, he also explains the importance of the area, how it must continue to be protected and used in positive ways. Because if evil forces, especially evil gods, found out about this place, they would move heaven and earth to corrupt it. Uh, and that they can't tell anyone. The secret is just for the four of them. Just these guys. At least at this point. My time of, as guardian has now come to an end. You, Artemis, have been chosen by the Lord to this to be uh, as the new keeper of the waters. This is a very important responsibility and one that would be yours for life. 
but you must choose to accept this duty. It cannot be forced upon you. It is your choice, Artemis. It's always been your choice. God, did she feel a stab in the heart when I said that. Because every time I bring that up, that's the same thing that Draven said in the when she was having her test and there was the evil version of herself. That's what was said. That keeps coming back to haunt her. Because I'm a jerk face and I like to work stuff in like that. We will leave you here for the night, Trevor says. When you have decided, we will know. Trevor smiles and leads everyone else upstairs. I gave Artemis some time. What do you want to do? She looks at the water. She drinks a little bit of the water. Immediately feels refreshed and awesome. The water is cool but not uncomfortable. Um, she decides to go into the water, and as she does, she can feel that just the healingness of it to the point that she's literally just laying in the water and she's just floating on top. Like she's not sinking at all. It's incredibly relaxing. And she's just laying there as the... Trevor left his, his uh, staff there. There's a niche that he can stick it in. And the light is reflecting off all the crystals and the quartz, which gives a blue reflection on all the water. So it's a very blue and white room. So it's all... She's laying in the water. She sees all the reflections in the crystals. And she's watching. Everything is swirly and the light's reflecting. The water, because she's in it's moving, causing them little ripples, which makes even more reflections. Very surreal. And you can feel the warm, healing waters all around you. Remember I said it was cool? I did. You are floating upon them, light as a feather. The crystals around you pulsate and glow. And you feel the presence of Tavian once more. Artemis, I thank you for your faith in me. You must go to the north. A great evil beyond comprehension is growing there. And you and your allies must rise against it. I will aid you in this battle. And you will know when to call upon me. And this chapel is yours now. Where it stands, you will one day build a great temple. Where any may come to, f no, to receive my healing powers. Defeat this evil that poisons the land. And at its center, you will find the answer to the question you all have been seeking. Rise, my child. Rise and purify that which has been corrupted. You awaken on the shore of the crystal cave. Deep inside of you, there's a hidden power, a spell locked away. You can feel its wanting released and just the overall strength, anything beyond anything that you've ever comprehended. The God's magic itself literally trapped inside of her. Artemis climbs the stairs to the chapel where her friends are sitting waiting. They all smile because she comes up She's just got this glow about her at this point. We go north, she says, into the forest. And that's what we're going to call it for today. Um, they'll spend a day or so resting there, prepping for their trip. There's some supplies. Trevor's not dead. He's still alive there. He's hanging out. Um, the only other little thing that I will mention about is that when Artemis tells Mercy of the dream, of course, they're best friends. Uh, she probably tells them most of it, but she tells Mercy that I've agreed to take this on and that one day I'm to build a great temple here. This puts me in a predicament. It means that 
I'm no longer going to be trying to go home. This is my home now. So when the day finally comes, if we're successful, and we can free this world to return to however, regardless of what happens, I'll be returning here. I've chosen to take this responsibility on, and I do so with a warm heart. Mercy gives a little tear in her eye. She's not very teary, but gives her friend a big hug, and they smile and chill for just a minute on there. And uh, they're outside just at the temple as they're saying that. And Mercy kind of looks over her shoulder as Artemis goes in to keep talking to Trevor or whatever. And Mercy's like, it's her first moment alone in a while because she's got all these guys hanging around her now. She's like, wow. And she looks over and out of the corner of her eye, she sees something. And she whips her head around, but it's not there. But for just a brief moment, she thought she saw a huge silhouette. She walks a little closer to the water, looking around again, and she looks up to night sky, very bright, the moon shining down on it. And she looks, and she doesn't say anything except that big crest of the hill. But then she hears something drop in the water. Maybe it was a stone or a frog jumping or anything like that. And she looks down into the water, and in the ripples of the water, for just a moment, she sees something. On the top of that hill, she sees a great castle. The shadow or image of one. When she looks back up at the hill, there's nothing there. Nor is there anything else in the water when she looks again. But she thinks back, she looks at it. She gets a little bit of a smile. And she goes back inside to join her friends. And that's the end of today's. Let me address some questions. Hey, Aji, we're just finishing up for the evening. Glad you finally got a chance to take a break. Work sucks. <laughs> uh, Jim says, I meant to ask, I know when Merge World happened, the gods were unable to communicate with the demigods. When the dream happened, did anything change that allowed the gods to show what to do? That is a very good question. So, the gods are able to communicate. The thing that Merge World does is it keeps them from taking a physical form, such as an avatar. So, Zoltan can take a physical form on the world because he's trapped inside the shield, this force field that's surrounding this world. The gods can send their magic through uh, because that's how clerics still have the ability to cast spells. And they can send images through or, or stuff. What they're giving to Mercy right now, it would be taking every ounce of power he's got to get that, excuse me, through the shield. If you remember way, way back, they went to Brother Bart when they were trying to find the Vistani stones at the very beginning. And he prayed for three days and was only given three hints. Three prophecies of where they could find the stones. There were one to the east, one in a place where even the gods can't see. That was New Gullyville. Stuff like that. That was the strongest message he'd received from a gods directly, even someone of his high rank, um, since before the merge. What Artemis is getting is the clearest direct message that they know of, that anyone has received since the merge. So if something has changed to allow that, they don't know what it is, or it could just be taking every ounce of power he's got, and that might weaken him for a little while. But he's always been able to send his magic through. That's why clerics still have power. Um, yeah, they could communicate through, they just can't take a physical representation here. They're physically blocked from being able to do so. So... I'll address just a couple of things that we that covered in the story today. Um, like I said, I knew from the beginning that Darsh wanted to have a boat. 
Uh, let's see. Did you get more? Did they get more power, or is that too much to ask? I can't answer that right now, just because I can't give away something in the future. Not a bad question, just not able to answer. It. <laughs> Uh, from the early stages, as these characters started to grow in the story, and I realized we we're going to be playing these long-term, that's when I started talking to them, and I'm like, well, what do you want to do with this character? What do they want in life? Darsh wanted to grow a merchant's fleet, much like his family had before. That was his goal, if they couldn't get back. Because, you know, at that point, they didn't know, we weren't even into the story enough that they knew there was a possibility. Um, Artemis always wanted to have her own temple, you know? Dandy didn't have anything specific. Dandy just wanted to, visit, to explore the world until she got this quest to find and kill a drought. <laughs> but Mercy has always wanted, you know, she missed the knighthood that she came from. Uh, but she recognized the limitations of the knighthood. So talking myself and the young lady who played the character, we kind of came up with an idea of what she always wanted to have. And that's what I've been creating over the last couple of of episodes. If any of you have ever seen the movie King Arthur uh, with uh, was it Clive Owens in that one? I think it was Clive Owens in that one. Yes. You'll notice that their version of Arthur and his knights wasn't so much of the typical we all run around in plate mail but that each knight was a person with specific skills and abilities that they brought to that group. They were his trusted friends even though he had other warriors and leaders, these were his generals, these are the people that brought something extra special that were overwhelmingly loyal to him. And that's what, I'm, what I was building for Mercy at this point. Ulrich, the right-hand man, a knight like herself, brings that experience, the leadership stuff, be her right hand. Quan, basically her rogue, gives her the ability to now have some sneaky-sneaky in case she needs it and Dandy's not around. Right? Seamus, your big guy, your classic big funk him on the head thing. <laughs> He's, a, he's also a very good warrior, but he's their brute. Um, and then the Owens brothers bring your rangers into it. So one of them was very animal-oriented, like one of the knights was in King Arthur, that kind of a thing. Um, I don't think they had a bird, but they have. I mean, one of them was very animal-oriented. One was more nature-oriented. That was the difference between the two. One was all into plants and stuff, and one was way more into the animals. Um, so they bring some different stuff in that regard. Are there more? Maybe. Well, down the road. Uh, but that was the kind of life we saw for her. In a situation where she had that loyal group of people, not necessarily a thousand knights that followed her around, but a handful of really loyal, capable people who could step up in those times of need. Uh, and so that is what Mercy is getting. So, and all these guys flesh out more as we move on. So much so. Um, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the episode and where the story is going right now. I know it seems odd because the stones and the, the artifact weapons have just kind of taken a back seat. We haven't talked about them in a while. There's a reason for that. Everything's kind of gone in a slightly different direction for a while. Um, but everything's connected. I make sure of it. Um, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear your feedback. If you have any questions, hypothesis on things that you think might be coming up, uh, definitely throw them down in the comments of this video. Um, or you can come into our Discord channel. If you go to my website, onlydraven.com, near the top is a button you can click on that'll join you up to our Discord. Um, we talk about video games and Minecraft and Merge Worlds. There's a thread specifically, uh, a channel specifically for Merge World stuff, so if you have questions about Merge World or other information you'd like to have, jump on in there throughout the week. I'm happy to answer any question I can that doesn't give away the story, uh, but I'm usually pretty good, but we don't give out most of it. 
Um, if you've enjoyed your stream today, hanging out, I appreciate you being here. Please click like if you liked it and subscribe if you haven't. So that way you can hang out for all of our streams, videos, and content. Um, what else? What else? Uh, we also have a membership program, the ODG Memberships. Uh, anybody who's posted in chat who has a green font, those are a member of our membership, uh, Draven's Dragons. If you go to anywhere on my YouTube channel and you click on the Join button, it'll show you all the perks and benefits that come with a membership, uh, including members-only streams, uh, Minecraft servers that only members have access to, whole mess of different stuff in there. And I'm always looking to add new stuff. It's like a Twitch subscription except cheaper and you get more stuff. It's only $2.99 a month. So uh, we'd love to have you if you'd like to be a part of that team. We're only four away from hitting our 50-member goal. We're at 46 right now, so that would be cool. Um, I think I'm going to call that a day. Jim, uh, let's see. thank you for sharing the story. Hope you feel better. I do too. Luckily, I'll see the doctor in the morning. Uh, I feel pretty miserable at this moment. I'm in a lot of pain. And trying to sleep tonight is going to be horrible. The only comfort I have is knowing that my appointment is like 8.30 in the morning. So I'm going to get out there early and hopefully at least figure out how much longer I'm going to feel this way or what they're going to do to take care of this. Um, uh, normally I stream Monday nights Minecraft. Right now I'm, I'm going to say that's tentative. If something happens and they're like, I have to have surgery tomorrow or the day after for the kidney stones, I may not be able to stream Monday. Uh, but I will let you guys know in the Discord and on Twitter as soon as I know more concrete stuff from the doctor. Um, so I hope to stream tomorrow, but I don't want to say guaranteed for sure and then have to break a promise. So uh, just keep an eye out for that information. But I'm going to call it a day again. Thank you all for coming and hanging out with me. Uh, special thank you to my members for helping me be able to afford to do all these type of things. Uh, your participation in that program means more than I can say. And an extra special thank you for my moderators for helping me keep the world going around. So you all have yourselves a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you very, very soon. You all have yourselves a great day. Night.